Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. I'm Brittany Wilbos. I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I am James Cohn. And we have not talked since before Halloween, all four of us in a room together. It's, it's very nice wild. to see everybody. Yay! We're in a very intimate setup right now. It's the closest physically we have yeah. ever been podcasting. I like before. it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're, we're sitting around a campfire. Yeah. We're all crissy yeah. crossy on the floor, except James, who's sitting on an ottoman. So he's I, like I'm a too, foot I'm higher. I'm too tall to be sitting on the floor. I think <laughs> some His legs would be pushing the rest of us out of the room yeah. for so long. We have to call this like our weenie roast setup. And we only bring it out for like special occasions. Oh, yeah. We're all sharing together. It is a special occasion today. It's the first yeah. podcast of the year, which is always us recapping our favorite movies from the previous year. This year, we are talking about the best movies of 2023, recapping our top 10 favorites, trying to streamline a little bit by talking about the movies just once as they came up on our list. So there'll be 24 movies total. A lot of them are only on one person's list, so that part will take a while, and then we'll get into some overlap. We've already moved on to the movies of 2024, though. Uh, James Hahn and I drove through a terrifying rainstorm <laughs> to go see the movie about the pool that kills people. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, I'd asked you to join me. I think it was like we were going to do the four o'clock showing, and you're like, I think it's supposed to rain like really bad. I'm like, no, definitely not. We missed the four. So we went to the six o'clock and as we're driving over there, it just torrential. Yeah. Down, it's not bad fast. Like yeah. scary. Right. Like to every, at first everyone was like, ah, ha, ha, look, the rain's finally here. And then everyone just <laughs> shut up and like dead silence. Cause I could not see anything out the window. The indignity of dying on the drive to see night swim. <laughs> night, swim. <laughs> night Yeah. <sighs> Which I think y'all enjoyed it a little more than me, but it was it was fine. I liked Night yeah. Swim. I had s- my expectations were so low, <laughs> and it was just much more fun than I thought. It was very funny. I don't know that it intended to be all the time, but it was. And um, the pool haunting mechanics were more interesting than I thought they would be. I don't know. There was some stuff to dig up, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did really like the kind of get out sunken place. Yeah. Stuff totally they, cribbed from that, yeah. too. Yeah, right. I, absolutely. 100%. And the, they cribbed the um, scary drain scene from it with like the yes. pool skimmer uh, filter on the outside. Oh, the yeah. kid reaches in there for a toy. Uh, pretty shameless. But the uh, the water goblin was pretty spooky. Pretty spooky. There's a water goblin. Uh, yeah. It was funny Spoiler. how much of it was yeah. about baseball and not about right. swimming. A lot of it was about baseball. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. like 50% what? pool, 50% baseball. <laughs> Is on a scale of like one to like lady in the water, mm. when you're thinking about like pool pool movies this, where does this land this I mean, scale means something different to you than it does to right, every other person does, right <laughs> to me this is like, like a 10 out of 10 pool movie because it, it's, it's a, all about the whole lot of pool. okay centered on the pool do you leave the pool a lot are you always in only the to pool? go play baseball for a little bit right you really? cool off with a well, swim but, after. but you you bought the pool because you're trying <laughs> right. to get your body back in shape to get oh yeah. baseball. so it's like yeah. a pur- purposeful pool yeah, the pool yeah. Like your health. is demonically possessed and offers you skills, <laughs> right. mostly skills at playing baseball, <gasps> so right. that you will okay. um, keep visiting it. Almost like right. a genie. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, but it requires sacrifice. But that's the pool <laughs> goblin that uh, that does that for you? Those are other people who've already been sacrificed yeah. to the pool. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. It was a fun movie, I think. You know, last year, the first horror movie of the year was Megan. Yeah. Which actually has a pretty strong chance of landing on our like group website top yes. 10. It will not come up today on this list, but it, it oh, has a chance to yeah, sneak in there. It's on my larger list. 
because it's a yeah. fun movie and it's like very gimmicky. The yes. pool movie is more self-serious, but I kind of mm-hmm. like that about it. It's a very like sincere mm-hmm. movie about an evil pool <laughs> where the premise is goofy enough that they didn't wow. have to like cocaine bear it and like right. make it like so over the top all the time that it was like wacky. I did like too that they don't ever really explain where this pool spirit comes from. It just kind of is. It's it always has origins. been. Yeah. The origin story could be the next like the prequel. The pool was haunted before people invented pools. Well, <laughs> I don't know if there will be a next one because I think there was two other people in this theater and it was opening like, night. <laughs> opening night on a Friday. Right. But there was the there rain, was a the storm, d- you huge know? rainstorm. So, so that might have something to do. Right. With it. Not because of the the quality of the movie. Okay. I have the list of things we're going to talk about today in front of me. Wow. Megan is not on there. Night Swim, not going to be on our list Mm -mm. next year either. Uh, Most critics lists for this year are split between Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Holdovers. Those are like the three movies that have any chance for like awards. Those will not come up today either. We have our own set list of like pet favorites, which I think we're pretty good about. I think we have stuff that we champion. And I, I really liked everything on this list today. Wonderful. So I'm very excited to talk about all these movies. I have nothing to yell at anybody about. <laughs> You're not ashamed at any of us. No arguments between me and James about what qualifies as a movie, which has derailed some of these longer conversations in the past. Um, or uh, me and Hannah ganging up and picking the Irishman. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that, that I think that's you maybe my life's biggest regret is putting the Irishman so high on that list. I don't really understand why I did it. That, that um, was going to be an idea for a future podcast is uh, redos. Yeah, like movies yeah. that we put in our top ten. That Ooh. watching it again, we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I like that. Maybe not. So we're always growing c- as people. Yeah, that's right. I like that concept. I don't like the idea of choices. sitting down to watch The Irishman a second time. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, there, there's a few no, other ones that I want to read. But I think it would much. be. Uh, well, anyway, we'll yeah. figure out the mechanics. We can workshop later. this. Yeah. Today we have plenty to talk about. Twenty-four yeah. movies coming up to you right, right now. now. I know how I was feeling when I got out there in my underwear and. <laughs> I was in front of the audience for the first time. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Harris, the costumes alone. I mean, yeah. the, the costumes, not to give away too much of the story, but you guys spend the better part of, of the movie in tights and shirtless. There we are. We were saying that was very, like, there's, there's this strange moment between takes where we were out in the sportatorium with, like, hundreds of amazing, like, supporting artists who were cheering us on, and then, you you know, the camera cuts, and you sort of stood there in hot <laughs> pants, and you just feel like... Okay, I'm gonna waddle back to the green. Because the like the adrenaline of a take where everyone's shouting, it's like it's yeah. one thing to be out there wrestling. Yeah. You know, and then it's another when they call cut and you kinda just gotta yeah. find a pose. We have a f- couple traditions on these, you know, micro traditions within this specific episode. Uh one of them is that Brittany usually has the most outliers. I'm always shocked. I love it. You're like a rogue agent out yeah, there. You're on Planet Britney, and I want to visit, you know? <laughs> it's the same when I look Everyone at Boomer's list, too. It's like, oh, he's on his own planet. Right. His own planet. It's, it's great. I did enjoy his list, though. We do have, also have another <laughs> tradition that I like to maintain when we can, which is James starting first. Oh, is that, is yeah. that a tradition? And this year, your number 10 is an outlier on no one else's top 10 list. And I think, no, Megan was the first film we saw last year. Had but, to be, yeah. It was like the first week. But the first one I saw. The uh, second movie I saw last year, and I think this is going to come up too, is that I think everything in my top 10 except for one I saw in the theaters. Same. But yeah, so this is Skinamarink, which, Uh. you know, made for $15,000 based on 
some uh, YouTube shorts that this guy did where people would send in uh, what their nightmares were as children, and he would recreate it. And it kind of turned into a feature-length project. Really atmospheric, and it is kind of like that slow cinema thing we talked about. But I don't know. Of all the horror movies I saw this year, I don't think that this was necessarily the best, but I just wanted to include it on my list because it got me excited about where the future of horror Mm. can go. This and Outwaters was another one from last year where I'm like, okay, there are interesting things that the horror genre can do. And uh, I know this movie was polarizing. Some people I talked to absolutely hated it, thought it was boring. I thought it was pretty revolutionary. I could see like this being the future of a genre of horror. And uh, there's another guy that does YouTube, did a YouTube series. It was called The Back Doors. Yeah, something like that. Um, back Room, maybe. Yeah, Back Rooms. Are, but kind of similar vibe, very surreal, trippy horror. And he actually is releasing a feature-length movie this year through A24. Oh, isn't he like stupid young? He's like yeah. a teenager. He's like yeah, 19. Yeah. That's crazy. But that to me, like these YouTube shorts turned into larger films that are really heavy on atmosphere. Uh, I think that's like where the genre should go that's interesting and so yeah uh i really liked skin and marink i know it wasn't everyone's cup of tea but i I think we all enjoyed it to different degrees i liked it i i was a little confused about what it was going for because it mixes so many different eras of pastiche like there's like a 70s film grain on top of it and if you watch the trailer it's presented like an old grindhouse movie and then it also is very tied to um, when we were children, like in the 80s and 90s, so it's got the kind of public domain cartoons we would have been watching at that time and like vintage toys from that era. And then it's also very much like you were saying, you're like copy pasta, internet spookiness. And like all of those different influences felt kind of like mishmashed and like kind of thrown in like one concept in a way I couldn't really get a handle on what it was trying to do, except that it was trying to be scary and that worked. Like yeah. in the theater, I was, I was on edge mm-hmm. the whole time. Well, and I do think it's, it makes sense if it's all these different time periods and how it started was people of various ages saying like, these are what the nightmares I had as a kid. So it being sort of a timeless thing wasn't really a problem for me. Uh, but it definitely gave me those, the vibe of like being home alone with the TV that's left on and something in the corner is moving or there's something under your bed and you freak the fuck out. And it totally captures that nostalgia mixed with terror. Yeah. I think in addition to all of those things, especially towards the end of the movie, it does bring you to a like kind of eldritch, otherworldly manipulation of space place. Like the beginning, or I would say the first like two thirds of the movie, it's mostly working with the confines of the physical house and just like creating tension out of um, these long extended shots of like lamps. But, but there's no manipulation other than like doors disappearing, but the very end like really brings you to, I mean, I don't want to talk about it in depth, but it's like a complete transformation of the, the home that you're used to, which is very cool. I will say 
even though I was I was positive but kind of mixed on some aspects of the movie. I have enjoyed using the word skinnamarink as a verb all year. <laughs> so like we were watching that movie, The Suckling, which is about this like yeah. abortion monster that traps people in a house and all the doors and yes. windows disappear. Yeah. It's like, oh shit, they got skinnamarink. They got skinnamarink. <laughs> like the yeah. concept has stuck with me, yeah. even if some of like the visual aesthetics are a little muddled in my head. Yeah. And, and that is, like I said, why I wanted to include in my top 10, just because I think it is um, something fresh. Yeah. When a lot of horror feels like sort of we've already been here before this actually felt like fresh and exciting. Yeah, it's like exploring a little corner of fear in your mind that doesn't normally get scratched, yeah. which is very cool. I still haven't watched it. Brittany, Brittany. <laughs> and I think it's like, I missed it when it was in theaters, and then I'm like, I'm going to watch this, but I'm like, do I want to watch this like alone and freak myself out? And it's yes. <laughs> I just haven't, you know what I mean? I'm just going to sit down and, and put it on. Not to blow your spot up, but you also just moved. And I think this would be a great time before you like decorate your house because it's about a house that like oh, has yeah. no features. You know, it's like oh my, I can live popcorn it. ceilings and nothing on the walls. You know? Have an, like a panic attack, <laughs> yeah, with my like cat and dog. I'm gonna do that. All right, we do have to get down to business, which is all the movies you watched this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was God. your number ten of the year? My number ten um, is May December. Yeah, <gasps> I always have a really like hard time doing like my my top five. I'm always like really strong on that, mm-hmm. but it's like my like sort of bottom five on a top ten. I always struggle with, and this one like was teetering between like a, the eleventh spot, mm-hmm. but it was I. It's kind of like what I enjoy, like all these guilty pleasure movies I like, which are very made for TV. They are like a lot of Lifetime movies. Like this felt like. Like that campiness that I crave was seeping out of it. But I think why I liked it a lot is because I was expecting it just to be like this silly, like almost like mocking these like Mm -hmm. Lifetime made for TV movies. And then the the male character, which Charles uh, Melton. Yeah, Charles Melton, like his performance, like brought me back to reality where it's like. The t- you know Julianne Moore and like Natalie Portman's like relationship in this movie is so campy and ridiculous, and I was so obsessed with it. But whenever he sort of had his moments on screen, I'm like, oh my god, this is so sad. Like this victim of grooming and yeah. abuse is like fucked up for life, and and just now realizing it, and and it's really coming together. Well, and it. This mirrors the true story of like Mary Kay Latorno. Latour Latorno. Yeah. Um, which I remember being a kid on every like National Enquirer like cover next to like, you know, the the checkout aisles of the grocery store. It was that woman's face with like her little like blonde bob. And this is like heavily, heavily based on like all of that, including like she had this Barbara Walters interview where she corrects him whenever he's like speaking out he's like he says something along the lines of in, in the barbara walters interview like i was you know 13 she's like you knew exactly what you were doing uh. and like watching like julianne moore just go batshit in this role was just a, it's a pleasure um i liked it i liked the trashiness and i liked the um the very serious and sad performance from charles that's kind of the todd haynes special right like his first feature was Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, 
where he like another re- made for TV movie I love. Yeah, he's like reenacting her life story with Barbie dolls, and like at first mm-hmm. you look at that, you're like, oh, this is like a dark, fucked up joke that's like making fun of this tragedy. Mm-hmm. But and as you're not. watching, it's like deadly sincere. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, this movie is the same as he's always done. It's like there's a level of artifice that is fun and kind of silly, and then he's actually showing how those tools are sincere at the same time and like how they can actually like yeah. dredge up deep uncomfortable feelings what a strange like feeling to have when you're watching this though where it's like you're you know you're laughing at one moment you're like this is like so hilarious and like campy and then like i don't know it just kind of hits the core of you every now and then it's like oh this is so sad the, yeah yeah this movie was like it wasn't in my top 10 but i think it was like number 14 or something Ooh. for me but more than any other movie this year, it's really like stuck with me or just like kind of been thinking about it. Like I, when I first watched it, I didn't love it. But as time goes on, I was like, that actually was a really interesting. Um, and I think that his performance is what really elevate. Like Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore are going to do their thing, especially Julianne Moore. I mean, she can chew up the scenery in any film, but his like, performance is what really has the heart yeah of the film in it and it's like devastating especially there's a scene at the end where they're like sitting on the roof he's having a conversation with yeah. his son that was like one of the most right. devastating scenes of the year yeah he has that line like i don't know if we're connecting or if i'm creating a bad memory for you Oof. yeah, yeah. <laughs> also got me when um natalie portman uses him for research in a uh, very right unfortunate way and, oh uh, i know go get a towel like, this is just what adults do like right. kind of tearing him down and like making him sit with the fact that he's still like a teenager emotionally right. yeah that one hurt too yeah yeah and I, I remember when that case happened too how gross the coverage was if, about like oh yeah you know guys they all want to bang their hot teachers like good for him and it's so disgusting and i'm glad that we can kind of get the real story of what was going on there yeah what's wild is like right now there are people on the internet arguing about the ethics of making this movie Mm -hmm. but at the same time there are people who are celebrating the release from prison of um gypsy rose blanchard the bayou is going nuts of course they are because you know she's (laughs) my mom went to school with like Dee. yeah that's crazy so like her dad lives there and all but it's yeah the celebratory every time she says something they're like oh when can we get her as a guest judge on rupaul's drag race queen yeah and it's like (laughs) let her live a normal life or she's still gonna be stuck in this like tabloid celebrity right k-hole because it almost feels like right like she's not gonna be a functioning human being because of that and it kind of Reminded me of this a little bit too. Yeah, I'm glad you said I haven't that, followed like, it too him. closely, but like the few tweets of hers that I've seen, I think she is going to be stuck in that yeah. celebrity culture. It's not going to end well. Black hole. It's not. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just I I love Todd Haynes. I've been like trying to catch up with all of his movies this year. I saw Carol, which was great, and um. Yeah, this movie was maybe, I think it was either like 11 or 12 for me, but I just like loved the dive into like processing tabloid stories into like, it reminded me of Marilyn a little bit, or Blonde, like the processing of people's stories over and over again um, into like content that people consume. And then I do think that Charles Melton like brought a little like 
core of humanity to the movie. I think it could have gone like too far into camp if he was this like super tragic, like melodramatic character. But he like it's like he was kind of the heart connecting everything. Uh, there's also another tabloid story that's like taken very seriously, which is your number 10 of the year as well, Hannah. Uh, my number 10 was Anatomy of a Fall, um, which I saw very recently. Um, it's been like very popular on a lot of like top 10 lists. It's about a family um, who live in France. Uh, this woman is a writer. Um, she's married to a teacher who who kind of wants to continue writing, um, but is in kind of a hard place. He falls out of a window, potentially, and the police uh, come to investigate. They can't rule out the possibility of homicide. So th- his wife, who's played by Sandra um, Huller, who's very good in this movie, um, is brought to trial. They have a son who is blind, who is like kind of caught up in the trial and kind of like learns more about his family and the relationship between his mother and his father than he, than he was aware of. Like they had kept him protected from a lot of their uh, relationship problems and like he's kind of a critical witness in the trial. So he has to well, and he also wants to, like, kind of dive into the truth of their relationship. Uh, so I just thought this was such an excellent um, examination of, like, love and relationships and how complicated love becomes over the course of a long-term relationship. Like, both of these people have these, um, like, grievances and, like, toxic behaviors and ways of relating to each other that they've become entrenched in over time. And like the uh, prosecutor, you know, will bring details of their life to light in order to paint her as like a monster or a terror. And it's just like, she's like begging the court to understand that like they, they can't see the truth of their relationship. There's also a language barrier because she's German. She's in a French court. So she's just, totally isolated um but i i don't know i just thought it was really devastating it it seemed like it was uh getting at that kind of story very accurately and it was i just thought it was a really well done beautiful movie i did really like the tension of the courtroom scenes which i mean we, we've talked about before especially like old noir films like that's death like yeah. just sitting in that courtroom listening to like details rehashed like that but in this movie in particular because of the French court system, like anybody can jump in at any time. There's yeah. no like real, um, Nuts. you know, like decorum to it. And um, yeah, there is one thing about like the horror of having your like things you said to win a petty marital argument, mm-hmm. like brought up in a trial, like to prove that you're a murderous person. That's one thing. But also the actor playing the prosecutor, his name's like Antoine Renarts. Yeah. That performance is so slimy and weaselly and like you hate him so much. <laughs> That, like, the tension in those scenes is just so over the top. And, like, that was when the movie, like, really hit me on the hook. Because anytime he was just bringing up old shit <laughs> right. you know, uh, to prove something that may or may not be true and is unprovable, really. Right. Yeah, like, bringing up passages in her old books. Like, Oh, uh, what a point- weasel. Right. Horrible. <laughs> yeah. I-, I watched it recently, too. And I really liked it. And mm-hmm. that 
all of like the idea of her just being like, I'm telling the truth right. all the way around. And you're like taking things that every that happens with every couple and twisting it to make it look like I murdered somebody. Yeah. It was like so stressful to watch where you're like, no, no, like this isn't it. And I don't know, it kind of like not like put me, yeah, kind of put me in her place a little bit where that's such a fucking nightmare to right. go through. There's one scene in particular where, you know, th- through the investigation, they find this argument that the husband recorded on a USB drive. So there's this, there's a point in the trial where they're playing the recording of their fight. And it starts with the recording and then the you see the actual fight happening as it as it unfolded. And I thought it was just like the perfect example of a fight that starts as a conversation between a couple and then it's like one thing turns a little bit and and it like brings the conversation up a notch and like it keeps becoming more and more tense and angry and frustrating until like you are in a place that you, it's like you never intended to be there but you're like angry and you don't know like who you are anymore and then something just kind of like explodes like I I mean it happens it doesn't always happen the way it happens in the film but like you know hell is other people like being with somebody can just like turn you in ways that you don't expect or like that you that you don't like Um, and it can be just totally shameful to have to relive that over and over again like i'm sure i've had fights that if i had to listen to it and other people had to listen to it it would be like like people would think i was because you say the ugliest things when you're like in the heat of the right. moment and i'm like i would never you know in good conscience like say shit sometimes but if i'm mad like you're trying to win it's all off argument. the table right yeah. yeah all right the next movie on your list at number nine is also a european <gasps> film about a troubled marriage <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, so this is um, The Five Devils, and it is a French film that me and Brandon both saw at French Film Festival. Overlook Film Festival. It was at Overlook? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we saw it at Overlook. Not technically a horror movie, right. so kind of funny on that program, but... Yeah. I guess it, you know, it's got some like... Supernatural some science fiction, elements. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Man, this it's, it's difficult to explain, but there is a troubled relationship, um... And this man and his wife and their daughter, who's kind of an outsider, uh, really great at smelling, has a great sense of smell. I was talking about today uh, putting this on a triple feature with perfume and polyester. Oh. Because that's like the most supernatural sniffers I've ever seen (laughs) in movies, you know? Wonderful. (laughs) Um, So the husband's sister comes to visit. There's clearly tension between the three adults. It's not clear why there's like kind of a little bit of chill between his uh wife and his sister uh the daughter gets a hold of this like perfume like oil stuff in in her aunt's um bag she smells it and she travels back in time to the time when her uh father and her mother and her aunt were teenagers and she begins to like watch their life unfolding like she kind of goes back and forth in time um she hates the aunt so she's like terrorizing her in small subtle ways in the real world and also like 
appearing to her as kind of a ghost in the yeah, past. Only like the she, aunt can see yeah, her. Yeah, only the aunt can see her and she's like terrified of her. And so the daughter is going back and forth in time, seeing the relationship between her mother and her aunt develop. And it becomes clear that they were like romantically involved and goes back like forward to the present day. And the aunt and the mother are like kind of rekindling their relationship. Like they still clearly have feelings for each other. So it's like, she's watching the relationship grow in both times and like is trying to disrupt it because it, it's like a threat to her, the relationship between her mother and her father. Right. She won't exist if her father and mother don't fuck in right. the past. <laughs> yeah. And this movie was, it was absolutely gorgeous. Like the, the mother and the aunt are on a dance team. Like in the past, there are all of these like, shots of like girls in sequins there's also a fire that's alluded to it's not clear like exactly what happened but the but the aunt set the fire at some point in the past so they're like shots of the sequins and the fire and just like like people who were burned in the fire like it's just this mix of like grotesque and like kind of flashy gorgeous imagery like the colors are beautiful and I thought it was like a just a really beautiful like queer love story. I love science fiction and supernatural um supernatural things. So I just like I don't know, it was just a very special movie and it was wonderful to see it like in the theater as well. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Petit Mama mm-hmm. and then also of The Fits. And I think yeah. it's um, safe to say that it's a lot more fucked up than either of those movies. Like, <laughs> if you want to see like a twisted version of those films, like this is a very good yeah. movie with a lot of style and um, a lot of big soaring emotions, right. uh, especially once everything kind of comes to a head and cathartically pays off with the fire that's alluded to throughout. Right. And there is like just like deep love between many people. And like, I don't know, it's just love is so complicated and this film like really grapples with that and how um you know like once the mother's relationship is developing with the aunt like the father is pushed out and that's complicated and like they're just these webs of feelings that are beautifully woven i thought it was a really beautiful movie Mm. Brittany's number nine is also a very complex family drama Oh my god set across a long period of time yes uh my number nine is the iron claw um did not expect to like give a shit about this movie (laughs) um like the the marketing for it like i remember watching like a preview where they're all like eating ribs and just like wiping their barbecue sauce hands and it was like this really hot moment i'm like oh is this like a thirst trap type movie where like it's just a bunch of hot dudes like i didn't i don't know i didn't know the von eric brothers story or anything like that so i'm like okay like watching dudes wrestle and okay and eat ribs and stuff like that right? i think having a half naked carmy from the bear <laughs> is good marketing right like <laughs> yeah he is like one of the hunks of the moment yeah yeah the big a big hearthrob and then of course like you know the zach efron like what happened to his face type thing well he has was, transformed himself big. into like a he-man action figure for this movie he's unrecognizable Obsessed. yeah <laughs> i think he looks i think he looks better than ever um but this movie, like, I cried so much because it was, like, these brothers were, like, stuck in this, like, 
hell of toxic masculinity that their father was pushing on all of them and like their mother was so like non vocal about it she didn't you know like like kind of sat there while it happened and the only thing that they had were like each other so it was like literally like a like a really good movie about brothers this and has like to be the record for siblings. the number of times that brothers has been said in a feature film like they yeah, say brothers every three words time. yeah because they love their brothers <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i i was crying at the end of the movie because oh i'm an only child and i was like i want some brothers <laughs> oh, brother. brother. well, i would love to be a brother <laughs> but yeah so it, you know long story short it's about like the uh von eric family who were big in in the wrestling world and also like had a lot of tragedy and the film like goes into this like tragic wormhole like real like it was unexpected and i think maybe i had a different experience i just didn't know like what was gonna happen or like the true story of this or whatever but like sort of watching them all struggle in the beginning like one brother was gonna go to the olympics and then the u.s didn't participate in the olympics that particular year because of you know issues with like russia and just the disappointment that he dealt with and it was it was made worse when he came home and his dad was like almost like shoving in his face was like now you're gonna do wrestling like he controls the lives of these grown guys and like they're doing everything to please their dad and to like make it on like his bizarre rank of like Here's my favorite son <laughs> now. And, and but like, the ratings can always change. Yeah. <laughs> he like, does give them an the accurate, fuck? like, up to the minute ranking, like, multiple times. He's like, you've moved up one notch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you see them carrying all this emotional weight and they can't meet these expectations. Like, they're succeeding in the public eye and they're all successful, especially, I can't remember the... Uh, Carrie is the Olympian who then becomes a wrestler. And that's, that's Jeremy Allen Jeremy White. Jeremy Allen White. And then Zach Efron. I can't remember his name. Oh, I don't know. They're different names. Right. And then Harris Dickinson's in there. Yeah. And there's a younger, softer brother who younger, should not be wrestling. He just wanted to play music. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to be into music and stuff. And there was so, ma- so much tragedy in the family that they actually had to not talk about one of the brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, it was like too much. Their oldest brother died and as then a child as a yeah. kid right and they just never it just i don't know it showed how like it sucks when that like a lot of like men are like hey it's like not manly if you cry or if you talk about your emotions like you hear it all the time and we know it's a thing but like watching it unfold and i'm like the trauma that everyone is carrying as they're trying to like have a successful wrestling career and the public's loving them and it is successful but it's never good enough for their dad so they're never truly happy like watching like zach efron's performance in here was so fucking good where he really showed like you could tell that he wanted to break down all the time but couldn't do it because I don't think he knew how because his dad had like emotionally abused him so much until he had sons who were also brothers who and used that brotherly that energy to okay. give him the, oh, yeah, permission like, to dad, cry. It's okay to cry. Like, we cry all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's once, I mean, I don't want to like give any spoilers or anything like that, but it gets fucking tragic as shit. And at the end, 
like sort of Zac Efron's character has that that wonderful moment with his sons and you could tell like that was a moment where it's like you, he's gonna break that cycle mm-hmm. yeah. that's been going on um, genera- generationally in that family um, I don't know I thought it was very powerful very moving and I thought they all looked great like yeah they they were beefy boys for sure oh my god they're just wearing those wrestling panties for like most of the movie too <laughs> yeah I love that scene in the beginning the mom's like put some pants on <laughs> but it it's like the commitment to a role like the physique especially like Jeremy Allen White and Zac Efron like their bodies were immaculate and I don't know beautiful I, to look at I really loved the first half of this movie yeah. where it's the brothers just hanging out. It's like the Days and Confused Dazed section. And confu- you know, they're playing Don't Fear the Reaper on the soundtrack and they're just doing like keg around stands. and doing keg stands. Tubing. And tubing. And like, yeah. I actually loved that, but I knew the story. So oh God. the second half was just like, felt like it was having to go through each of these tragedies, kind of like a Wikipedia yeah. thing. It's like, yep, that happened and then that happened and then he died and then he died. And then it, it does have a very uplifting ending. But that first like hour was just brothers hanging out. Yeah. Good vibes. Good vibes, dude. I like I could have done with just <laughs> Good two hours it. of that. Um just brothers being brothers. Yeah. yeah. And Pam. <laughs> Pam was wonderful. Yeah. So I, I really I enjoyed it too. I liked Zach Efron a lot in um Beach Bum as well, right? He's like the Christian rocker weirdo. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah. I was trying to think of like what he's been in. I mean, obviously high school musical. But I, you know, I, mean, I think he's trying to break out as like a weirdo character actor now. Well, he's I, great. I was he say should like, do more. There was that Seth Rogen movie, like Bad Neighbors. I didn't see that. Was that, he in he, that? Yeah, he was like the yeah, bad, like a the frat, frat boy, and he was hilarious. Like okay. he's so funny in hmm. these kind of outsider kind of comedic. Not that this was a comedic role, but yeah, um, it is a little bit sometimes. He's a little so, funny because he only knows one word, and it's brothers. It's like <laughs> brothers, and he's like, I just like eating ribs he's and hanging out with my giant. brothers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's keep the macho energy up with your number eight, Brittany. Oh my god, um, yeah, <laughs> John Wick Chapter Four, <laughs> very macho, but way more heart. More heart than the Iron Claw. I don't know. I think John Wick is like the nicest action man. Okay. In action yeah. man history. He loves his wife. He loves his dog. Loves them d- all dogs. Yeah. Like he literally like sacrifices his life for a dog in this movie. So so man of your heart. What? Yeah. yeah. Literally? Well, kind of. Okay. Like he could have died. It's but ambiguous. he didn't, but he did it so Ooh. he could save this dog. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. you know, it's a good cause. <laughs> like John Wick dies <laughs> at the end because he wanted to save a dog. But this is probably this whole franchise is phenomenal and like this movie the the latest and greatest john wick chapter four is like the best action movie i've seen this year and probably like the best action movie i've seen in the past like 10 years whoa it's very good like the martial arts in this movie it's like beautiful to watch happening there is a lot of death and a lot of kills but the way they're done it's amazing it's very inventive yes yeah and the cinematography in this movie is absolutely gorgeous like there's this neon gloss over fucking everything and you're brought around the world like one like you're in dubai and then you're in like japan with like the blink of an eye because john wick travels fast we don't know how but it happens (laughs) but it's always entertaining and this movie's almost like three hours long it's kind of like three hours long 
and you're never like there's never a lull okay and that, for a film to do that that was my amazing. one sticking point is like what? i saw the first john wick when it came out in 2014 yeah i thought it was fine I was really in love with the guest that year. And I was like, why is like this better? Like, I forgot that was around the same time. Soldier who's like drawn back into the life movie, not getting as much attention as John Wick, which is like a kind of DTV action movie. Like it's fine, except the action choreography is really good in it. But like all of the aesthetics feel very standard to like direct to video action movies. Okay. But you know, it's got Keanu Reeves. I think Willem Dafoe's in that one too. And like the action is really competently done and cohesively edited in a way that people had not seen since like Hong Kong in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. So because I was kind of lukewarm on it, I just did not catch up with the sequels. And then I knew today this was the one movie on anyone's list that I had not seen yet. Yeah. So I watched all three of the sequels yesterday in like one go. (laughs) Dear God. And each one got better. Like, I guess because the series has more money and more people like contributing and more time to like, plan out all this choreography and, it's like and developing. Yeah, yeah and the lore it, gets deeper it's like, yeah but each movie gets 20 minutes longer than the one before it <laughs> so like one movie was like you know almost two hours the next one's like two hours and 20 minutes and then two hours and 40 minutes and then this last one is like three hours long yes and i was just like by the end my fault for watching all of them in a row but like numb from watching gunfire <laughs> for an entire work I, yeah, day you know i could see this being like wild to watch like ba- did you end up getting to four yes and i liked it a lot i don't know that i liked it's it wonderful better than three like three really? and four are both kind of equal in my head i think the difference is like three opens um in new york and has this amazing sequence where he rides a horse and is on a gunfight in new cool. york city like in traffic shooting people on motorcycles while he's on a horse looks great but that happens early in three. Yeah. And it kind of goes downhill from there. Four builds up to its big sequence like that, which is him climbing these like 200 steps the up to- The stairs of the Sacre Coeur Church where he's like- So the the whole gist of the four is like he's defeating the high table, which is this bizarre like underground- crime assassin entity the secret society of russian mobsters yes led by the scars guard i can't remember bill the one from it yeah, yeah he's great in here too and basically every every badass in the world is out to kill john wick and john wick is out to destroy this entire organization at the same time it's explosive and I don't know, like, I felt like my heart rate was up so much, like, watching it, because, like, he never catches a break. <laughs> like, yeah. he just gets, like... He should be, he should have died, like, 30 times in the movie, yeah. He's, like, in 20 car wrecks. Yeah. And then, like, when he gets out of this, like, destroyed car, like, people are, like, shooting at him, and he's, like, you know, trying to dodge bullets, and then, like, you know, doing martial arts at the same time. Like, I've never seen this before, except for, like, when you said like Hong Kong, like hard boiled, it reminded me yeah. of like we a watched more all those Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. all those Jackie Chan movies last yeah. year. Yeah, except I don't think Keanu Reeves is doing his own stunts. Mm, maybe not. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't know. Like I think they're doing. I don't know. If there's gonna be. They've announced a John Wick five, but also they're like, oh, it's gonna be ballerina, which is like a spinoff. There's also a TV series called The, the Continental. Continental. Which is the hotel system they have. But yeah, I think four leaves you on a really good high mark. Like him going up those it steps in that well. Sisyphean thing where he keeps getting knocked down and like, oh my back God. Up. And it goes on for like 30, like a huge portion like of the movie hour, is him yeah. like falling downstairs. 
<laughs> also, I really like that by four, it starts to feel like an extension of the Matrix movies. Because yeah. not only is... Um, who plays Morpheus? I can't think of his name. Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne yes. comes back as this like king of the homeless uh, yes. character who is this Lives like all-seeing god in this world who like helps him get the skills he needs he gets his suit pressed for him but also (laughs) it's like this fake video game environment where like if john wick is having a gunfight in traffic yeah the cars keep moving as if someone hasn't just jumped into the cars like they're like npcs driving these cars or like if he gets into a gunfight at a rave the ravers keep dancing in the background, not responding to the gunfire like 10 feet away from them. It's like a video game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's really fun in that way. So, if, I mean, I, the Matrix enjoying part of my brain was like on fire during nice. that, that yeah. stuff too. So, it's just a, it was a good movie. cool movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, we're going to move away from American blockbusters and back to the European festival circuit. Uh, both Hana's number eight and your number seven were outliers. Yes, they were. You know what? Seven, eight, nine, ten were all outliers, and they were all kind of European. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Bringing the Criterion and movie, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, That's, authenticity yeah, to the pod. Yeah, I'm the. I feel like I'm the movie lady. Okay. <laughs> so number eight uh, was EO, uh, directed by Jersey Skolmowski. This I think this is like released in the U.S. La- this or last year. But it was like available. I think it was on your list in 2022. Yeah, I got a fe- I got a screener for yeah. it for Sefka, so I saw it a little early, and yeah. then it came out at the broad. I want to say either late January or in February in 2023. Yeah, yeah. So this is a s- second year runner for our top ten list. Um, so EO, I think we've we've talked about this movie pretty extensively. Uh, EO is a Polish donkey. Uh, the circus that he works in is shut down, and he um, is taken away to uh, work on a farm. And then he escapes, and he just kind of like roams from place to place, uh, missing the uh, woman that he used to have a you know a friendship with when he lived in the circus. And it's it's kind of it's a, like a modern update of. Al Hazard Balthazar, which I love. I just feel like any movie that predominantly features a donkey, I love. Like, I can't help it. Um, EO is like so sweet. He has his sweet little ears. He just wants a good life. He is traveling from place to place. And I do feel like uh, this movie dives a little bit more into like a donkey's personhood or identity than oh yeah like, we watch him oh, dream Hazard. yeah he dreams of like the horses galloping um i think he kicks there he's taken at some point to a place that's like skinning foxes and he like oh he's um there are some men like electrocuting the foxes and he kicks them you know basically EO has some agency in this film, which is very fun to see. Um, it has like these really strange experimental shots, like the dream sequences and the sequence where he's walking through the forest and there are like laser lights. Yeah, there's these little drone robot yeah. dogs that are like stalking the woods. So, like, even though the movie is kind of timeless and like feels like it could have been made around the time mm-hmm. as Balthazar, like, it's also very up to date in like what technology it's including yeah. in its fairy tale narrative. Yeah. yeah, and there's also that there's a shot um at some point he is uh kind of beaten by some guys that break into a bar and then that is like 
uh, followed by a shot of a robot dog like trying to get it's fallen over and it's trying to get up it's yeah. like this kind of poetic connection between the two which also like really puts this movie in in the place that it was made um but i i don't know i feel like that story of a creature just trying to make a good life for itself in the world that it's living in that it has really no control over is um just always going to be compelling to me and uh you know i liked it when robert brisson did it and i liked it here too with a totally different like interesting visual style yeah and for a man in his 80s like he is showing yeah. off and trying things like yeah. playing around with the equipment like he's not settled and like kind of just coasting he's like really you know trying to make make a name for himself yeah. still yeah that that's what i really appreciate about it because we saw it wonderful film of his from the 70s deep mm-hmm. in deep that was one of my which favorite I loved, movies that i saw last year but to see like a yeah a man in his 80s doing something pretty cutting edge and experimental is like hell yeah mm-hmm. yeah because we talked so much about you know how some directors sort of fall off towards the end of their career the late style yeah is that what they call Kinda it like paul schrader's been making the same movie every year for the past <laughs> six years <laughs> right. so yeah i i really enjoyed it when I saw it too, yeah. it's really good. So my number seven is uh, Fallen Leaves by Aki Kaurismäki. And I got to see this in Finland. I went a couple of weeks ago and they there was this like really beautiful theater that was reopening. It had been closed for a period of time. And it had this like special showing of Aki Kaurismäki's Proletariat trilogy. So they had Shadows in Paradise Ariel, um, the Match Factory Girl, and uh, Fallen Leaves playing on the same day. This is the real European yeah. cinema authenticity so cool. moment right now. Yeah, it was. It <laughs> was you traveled for it. So I unfortunately I couldn't see the first two films, which actually I hadn't seen. Oh, Shadows um, in Paradise is very good. Yeah, we we have them, so I'll see them eventually. But I needed to spend some time with family um, at that time. But I did get to see Match Factory Girl again, which I love, in a theater, and Fallen Leaves. And those movies really have a strong connection, to It was interesting to watch the Match Factory Girl followed by this. They both have those, like, kind of, like, brooding Finnish, like, almost tango songs about sadness and, like, kind of, like, the inevitability of suffering and, like, the need to escape. Um, they both center a woman who is a very hard worker um, who's trying to make a good life for herself, but Fallen Leaves is a little bit more optimistic. So Fallen Leaves um, is about a woman. She works in a supermarket. Uh, she meets this man at a karaoke bar. They don't talk. They just kind of like exchange glances. Very beautiful. And like she gets fired and takes a job at a bar and like just kind of keeps running into him they both continue to have problems with their jobs but they like it's like they're these two little planets like slowly gravitating towards each other and eventually they like meet go on a date and she gives him her number he loses it they (laughs) kind of like part ways again because he can't find her he's like standing outside of the theater where they saw a movie together every night 
waiting for her. And I mean, the crux of the movie is these two people that are like just trying to deal with their own shit and struggling with um, like he's struggling with alcoholism. She's trying to just kind of like find some happiness uh, and they're both negotiating um, their own like boundaries and problems trying to find and create some love. They're like trying to make space for each yeah. other. Like they both have these like tidy, small lives that like they have in control and they want to connect and become yeah. a couple, but they have to like make space and like kind of change a couple things about themselves to like to like make room for each other. Yeah. It, it's like a very sweet little almost like a rom com. It's a little yeah. sad. Just about like making that space and like getting on the same page and like how hard that is. Yeah. And that yeah, and I liked how kind of undramatic like when she asks him, you know, like, well, you're gonna have to quit drinking. And he's like, okay. Like so easily Well oh, that's a struggle <laughs> for him. It's a struggle Easier for Easier said than done. Yeah. But he he does. I mean, and it, I don't know. It's a short movie. Yeah. So it's not like this dramatic like, oh, I, I'm wrestling with this thing. It's mm-hmm. just like, I need to do this thing because this person that I want to include in my life is asking me to do it. Yeah. And there's something very just sweet and nice about that. Yeah, it's that. a very sweet film. And I feel like this is what he does so well. And he does it consistently. Uh, you know, I, I like every single film of Curry's Mackey's that I've seen, to be honest. And I like them all in the same way. And it's kind of different than what we were just saying about EO. Like... I was just saying, like, oh, it's fun that this director's still trying new things late in life. Um, yeah. The Cars Maki movies I've seen are all the same visual palette. Like, mm-hmm. it looks, I'm going to say the word tidy again, but it looks like yeah. like a very carefully curated, like, Polaroid. It's got this, like, old, aged look to right. it. If he had made this movie around the time he made Match Factory Girl in the 90s, like, it would have looked exactly the same. Yeah. And Match Factory Girl already looks like a movie that was made 20 years before that, you know? <laughs> And that consistency is actually really endearing with him. Like, it's like, oh, it's another one that does that thing I like. And yeah. it's very charming every single time. He always gets away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, it's like everybody lives in these kind of, they they are tidy. Like, they're a li- they could be drab, but the colors in his movies are actually like, they're very saturated and kind of lush. And there are these combinations of like, it's like cheap kind of, a composite wood furniture and like saturated sofas and tapestries and you know just like little details that could look kind of cheap and depressing but feel like very comforting and you can tell that they have a pride in their little living spaces that they like you know they don't have much but they make it look pretty one of the like heartbreaking things that's also kind of funny is like when she invites the man over for a date, she buys a second pla- mm-hmm. set of plates to like cook for two instead of one. And then when it looks like it's not going to work out, she throws away the extra plate because <laughs> there's no room for it in her little house. Yeah. Like, that's very sweet. It's a little sad. Um, and yeah, you just w- really want to see them work it out. Yeah. But it hit, and he has a good eye for humor too. Like the, the very first, I think it's the very first shot in this is like at the grocery store and someone just buying a shit ton of meat. And it's going down the like conveyor yeah. belt and it's just piling it's up. Bizarre. Like smushing together. And it just like from the very first second just got a laugh out of me. That's yeah. just a funny image. And he has a way of like seeing those small moments of beauty and kindness, but also humor and sadness and 
I I love it. You yeah. could just pump out one of these a year and I would be happy. Yeah. There's also a lot of bizarre out of context images in your number seven movie of the year as well, James. Oh, well, that's a good segue. So my number seven is a dream scenario. Uh, and I kind of wanted to do, I, I couldn't decide between this and sick of myself because they're by the same director, Christoph Bogli. I, he's Although, Norwegian. Also another no- Northern European guy. Yeah. yeah. He's a Norwegian director. And both Dream Scenario and Sick of Myself are kind of like imperfect films that are very funny and have very kind of outlandish premises. And Dream Scenario especially, I think it's because I'm a Nick Cage guy. Uh, this is a great Nick Cage performance in this movie of a professor who like can't really get his writing off the ground. He wants to be more successful than he is, but he has a pretty happy life. And uh, all of a sudden, he just starts popping up into everyone's dreams. And in the beginning, he's not doing anything in these dreams. He's just sort of standing there. But word starts to spread like a meme. Like, hey, was Professor, I forget his name, was he in your dreams? Like, yeah, he was. He was just standing there. It's weird. And he sort of becomes famous for this. And the film turns it into like a commentary on fame uh and how fleeting it can be and how you lose control over your own image because what starts to happen is the dreams aren't nice anymore and he's not just like standing there he's actively participating and it's nightmarish and it freaks people out and they kind of turn against him and so this newfound fame is taken from him and uh this movie has some of the funniest scenes of the year, I, I Nick think Nick Cage is hilarious in this. Nick Cage is hilarious, and his character is so interesting because he's not necessarily, to me, he's not a bad guy. He's just like he's driven by his ego, and he's just kind of a dumbass. There's nothing special about he's him. He's so milquetoast, so <laughs> unimportant, and that's his plight in life. Is like he wants more recognition, and this like dream scenario thing is perfect. Like he can finally get what he wants and then he sees kind of the downside of it. But I also have to mention that it has my single favorite comedic scene of the year where he starts working with this marketing company is like, oh, you know, we can get you into Obama's dreams and we can do commercials like in people's dreams. And uh, who play the what's his name? Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah plays his like the marketing guy or whatever, but one of the people working for him has been having recurring sex dreams about Nick Cage. And she wants to like reenact what actually happened exactly in her dream and bring it into reality. And obviously there's complications, including some flatulence, uh, (laughs) which got the single biggest laugh out of me the entire year. Uh, And it's such a great statement about when we try to bring like this fantasy of what something is going to be like into the real world. And, and it's just, just an old man mm-hmm. farting in just, your apartment. Yeah. <laughs> just like totally Amazing. does not live up to the expectations. And I was howling with laughter. And so, th- yeah, this movie has like a lot of laughs, but it also has a heart to it as well. It ends on this really beautiful kind of sentimental note. Um, so it, it is kind of a bittersweet 
thing, but I couldn't help like tying it with Sick of Myself, two films that kind of are both sort of about the same thing, both like have minor flaws that I kind of ignored because they were just so funny. And yeah. uh, this one especially had more heart for me than Sick of Myself. And I thought Nick Cage's performance really elevated it. And it's also got some really surreal. Uh, the dream sequences are very cool and there's like crocodiles weird. and people flying and yeah yeah it's a bunch of weird shit. So it's a weird it's a weird fun movie. I, I really enjoyed this one. I think you you were ta- you were talking about it being about fame, and I think what's interesting about those two movies is like they're both about fame right now, and mm. like specifically trying to figure out this like new form of fame, especially in the social media era where you're just famous for being like, you're just like public person and you're not doing anything. You don't have to have like mm-hmm. a special talent. Right. He you're wants to be a famous. Personality. For, he wants to be famous for his writing, but his writing isn't interesting. I- interesting. But <laughs> him being in people's dreams is interesting. But in the dreams, he doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. <laughs> and I think the movie, if it does have a misstep in the back half is it, it kind of becomes about cancel culture in a way that's kind of like weak. I didn't care for that segment if i were writing this this is like great form of criticism to like rewrite a movie entirely but like (laughs) if i were writing this like that second half where everyone turns on him he would still be doing nothing like in the dreams he starts committing these heinous acts that makes everyone turn on him instead it would be much funnier to me or much more accurate to my if he was watching heinous acts happen to other people and not doing not doing anything yeah. yeah Like the the same way that people are famous now and eventually you're just like, I'm fucking tired of looking at Chrissy Teigen. I don't know why last week I liked looking at Chrissy Teigen and now I'm tired of hearing (laughs) her fucking name all the time. You know, like there's just something about someone hanging out as a personality that like people turn on you eventually. Yeah. That like the movie almost touches on and like instead goes into like the cancel culture, like Joe Rogan and um, Dave Chappelle style. And then it goes into like the commodification aspect like the capitalist aspect yeah. as well which is still funny it's just not yeah. as funny yeah it just it has a lot of ideas and yeah. like a lot of them work some of them don't that's why i say it is flawed but like it's a it's a pretty fun fun ride and nick cage is great in it and you're right that it has more heart than sick of myself which is a much meaner crueler yeah. movie that movie's fucking cruel yeah <laughs> which i think some people might prefer that yeah i liked it more slightly but they're both very good yeah Okay, no cruelty detected in the next film. Uh, Britney's number seven for the year. Oh. A very nice movie in comparison to the yeah. two we were just talking about. A very sweet film. Um, so my number seven is Past Lives. Oh. Um, yeah, so I think it's Celine Song's like directorial mm-hmm. debut. Which, it's a playwright? Yeah, and it kind of felt like a play the way it played out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this film and i want to say it's like sort of based on some events that she experienced but it's um these two kids in south korea um that sort of have this like connection just sort of like you know close friends like you know 12 year olds dating type connection and the girl and her family immigrate to toronto and they lose connection Years go by. Um, she has her sort of English name, which is like Nora, and the the guy in South Korea seeks her out on f- not uh, MySpace, not Facebook, on MySpace, and or Facebook. 
I don't I remember. It's was it Facebook? Like, yeah. 2000s era social media. I think that's though. why yeah. like it was like the old like Facebook logo and I got yeah. conflicted, but social media. So he like finds her on there and it's sort of like he wants like in his mind she's that same girl that he was in love with when he was like 12 years old and it's this he kind of like sort of commits himself to her thinking that she's still that same person and they she lives in new york she's um a writer she gets married to a guy who's a great husband for like letting her sort of explore this relationship and this potential like you know lost love from south korea so guy from south korea shows up and like she's able to differentiate herself where she's like you're in love with 12 year old me i am not the same person we're like two different people now but it's like it explores that idea of like soulmates and love and like destiny and brings it to reality which i found like really interesting and a lot of like films don't do that where you know the basic formula is what would have happened is he would have gone she would have been like oh, i really love you i'm gonna right. leave my husband for you and we're gonna live happily ever after and the husband even comments on that like in most versions of the story i'd be the yeah. villain getting in the way of your true love exactly and it, it sort of it's so grounded in reality that i found it to be so refreshing and like i haven't watched a lot of films that really do this and it wasn't like the ending supposed to i don't know if it was supposed to be sad or not but i didn't think it was very sad i was like okay this feels right <laughs> like you know she's gonna go on living her life mm-hmm. and he'll live her he'll live his and i don't know that it's supposed to be sad but i, I did see know. one tweet that described this movie as like every conversation is the most meaningful conversation of these people's lives <laughs> and that's kind of how the ending is too it's yeah. like it's like meaningful moments yeah one after another and they're all very tenderly played yes yeah yeah so i i enjoyed it i thought it was just a really good movie about like a good storytelling movie about like real people yeah yeah and i th- it was nice to see a film that grapples with like like love that could have been in a way that's like healthy and realistic and like yeah. you don't there isn't just one love and you have to abandon everything the second that it pops up it's like truly like your network of like lovers is malleable and like you can be in love at one point in your life and then it turns into something else at some point yeah. you know it's like it's nice to have a film that establishes that pattern of like okay, I can, like, let these feelings go or, like, this was really important to me. And I think I've read that people had mixed, not mixed reactions, but it's, like, for some people, this film allowed them to process an old love and move on from it. And for some people, like, they had a completely different emotional reaction to it. Yeah, but I I think that it's, like, a really thought-provoking of soft film very adult yeah like the conversations in this film are very especially with the husband yeah character when they're lying in bed talking just talking it through you know communicating about what they're feeling i just like oh this is how adults like Mm -hmm. should communicate with one another which is very refreshing it was very meaningful dialogue exchanges i think the one Part of the movie that like really sang to me was when they were reconnecting over Skype mm-hmm. and over like Facebook and stuff. There's something about that sequence in particular that felt like more cinematic than the rest of the movie to me. 
And the rest was more like situational and like mm-hmm. almost like short story writing style like mm-hmm. narrative, which was, you know, very smartly done and like had a lot of complexity between these three characters. I don't know that it ever like turned into like movie magic to me other than that one mm. sequence where they start communicating over the internet and there's like this kind of interface that's not just people in a room talking. There's like an extra layer to it. I I struggle with that with with the ending where I was like, I was feeling emotional about it, but then I'm like, is this, did this film earn this emotional reaction? Like, I don't know. I, I, I still struggle with yeah. like, did it actually do a great job cinematically telling the story it was trying to tell? Or is it just like such a good human adult story that, and it's refreshing because you don't see a lot of stuff like it each year that you're like, oh, that's a special yeah. movie. So I I don't know. That's kind of where I fell on it. But I, I did enjoy it. I'm not meaning this in an insulting way, but like there was something very simplistic about it. It is simple. Yeah. Very simple and very straightforward. That Which it can felt mean like, elegant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Like it felt like when you walk through Ikea. <laughs> you know, like everything's oh, it's organized very yeah, and yeah. clean. And there aren't a lot of colors either. Like, okay. It's yeah. very like muted color palette. Oh, yeah. God. Her like white apartment. Right. But I think that's tough too with like dialogue, especially in this movie. You want it to be understated because a lot of it is stuff you can't say out loud. Yeah. But it gets to a point where it's so understated where we're just kind of sitting around looking at each other. And I, that the actors have to pull, yeah. right. you know, do their job and bring some emotional weight to it. But there, there's like kind of a balancing act with that. I think they were successful in that, though. And especially the last scene. It's like they're so much hinges on just two people standing and looking at each other and it could just feel yes. like nothing and it feels like so important and devastating or j- maybe just like cathartic and sweet you know so I, I think that they did a good job of like being simple but instilling it with emotion alright no more subtlety no more restraint no more kindness <laughs> Let's get back to cruelty oh. and supernatural <laughs> bullshit. Uh, Brittany's number six of the year. Oh. <laughs> My number six is Talk to Me. Uh, that's a cruel cool movie. Yeah, yeah, that's a cruel one. Yeah. I was thinking about um, when you were talking about Skinamarink, how there's this sort of like YouTube tapping into horror and mm. like the directors of this movie are two YouTube brothers who have like mm. a YouTube show. Australian YouTube pranksters, like the lowest dregs of YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And yet, and yet they made a really, a really chilling fucked up yeah, horror movie. movie. Um, so I am really into that idea of like grief and horror. Um, mm-hmm. Cause like hereditary when that came out blew my mind. Still one of my favorite movies of all time. This follows that pattern and there's a couple other films like midsummer's one that does babadook. it really well mm-hmm. babadook right babashook um, <laughs> why don't you babashook yeah. <laughs> um this does it really well and it also explores like the idea of like peer pressure that sometimes leads to like addiction um it's just a bunch of teenagers who find something cool and everyone's doing it and then if you don't do it you're sort of this pussy and then they bully you into doing it and and you're being filmed 
while yes. you're doing it. The social media aspect that, of that this part too. That was me my out. favorite part in the scariest. Like, yeah, it's not just about like drug addiction and grief and things, which are part of the like larger metaphor. Yeah. But that peer pressure of someone making you engage with this thing that's very like dangerous and mm-hmm. unknown was yeah, it had me on the edge of my seat. And then the violence that results from it had me covering my eyes, which yeah. I don't normally do for horror movies. And it's like everyone's desensitized to it because it's like, oh, it's a challenge. Throw it on Snapchat, put it on this or that. Like, so it's terrifying where it's like you're fucking summoning a spirit by like holding this fucking terrifying looking hand and you get possessed. And then everyone's like, yeah, cool, right? This is pretty awesome. That reminded me of like why i'm so scared of like youth and like kids and stuff is because like i feel like that would really happen in real life if there really was a hand like that out there yeah i wouldn't be surprised but this movie was fucking scary as shit like i was terrified saw it in theaters there were so many moments where like i covered my Mm -hmm. my face especially like when um one of the main characters like her younger brother gets yeah no, that participates. That, there's a lot of self harm. Oh, that, yeah. that was probably the most possessed. uncomfortable scene I've watched all year yes. in a horror movie. Is and it's one of those scenes where you can't like the directors are like you have to watch this and we're gonna make you watch it because normally like if there's something really grotesque and violent like you it might be like a five second thing. This shit was like thirty seconds and yeah. it kept going and going. So you had to like watch this like brutality unfold that is something i will say for this modern crop of you know people do complain a little bit about like trauma horror and like grief horror yeah like it's very reliant on like the metaphors like the driving force or whatever one thing that i think is really overlooked when we're complaining about that is things linger now in a way that's really uncomfortable especially you mentioned hereditary earlier Mm -hmm. like yes it's not this like jump scare thing where like something really scary happens and startles you and then you move on to the next like build of tension for the next release you linger on the after yeah. effects of violence in a yeah. way that's very uncomfortable and like leaves you the sickly squirmy feeling yeah and I think that's very strong about like horror trends right now yeah, yeah I, I i do think that like horror as mental illness kind of thing is not maybe run its course but it's been done quite a bit but like what made this one stand out was how particularly nasty it was and unrelenting and it was brutal. Also, it's got a very inventive like mechanism. Like the hand thing is mm-hmm. strange, and it's its own. I can't think of many other movies with that kind of like delivery system for demonic possession. And it, it's kind of like silly in a way. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of, like the monkey's paw yeah. or something like. But it's the design of it is actually frightening, and the, the way creepy. those scenes play out, it's like you're really on the edge of your seat. It's one of those films like when you're finished. You get to bring something home with you, and that is just like being scared shitless and mm-hmm. thinking about the fucking horrible, horrible in a like terrifying sense, but very good ending. Where I thought about it for like yeah. a week, it was I just a kept good thinking. Ending. I was like, yeah. "Fuck! Like, what's what's next? Like, this is horrible. Like, it's scary." How do we feel about a sequel being greenlit? greenlit? I would watch it. Where it's called Talk. The number two, and then me, <laughs> is the the name yeah, of the sequel. It's silly, oh but I, I would I would watch. Yeah. It. I'm gonna watch it. Yeah, because it, uh, yeah, it lends itself to multiple. Oh my god, the hand could be the new scream mask. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> isn't it like isn't the sequel like delving into the history? Of yeah, that? I don't I know if I want that. Right. Yeah, I don't know if I want that either. But I'm 
Is, is it the same directors? Yeah, I think so. Wait, right. this is real? Yeah, it's happening. Yeah. Oh, I thought yeah. you were just like no. joking. Like, hey, what if it was talking <laughs> to me? I'm on board with that. I like oh, the, I like the gimmicky title. I, I also like I that they it. were selling um, ceramic <laughs> versions of the hand. Uh, yeah. That people could buy off the website, and then people didn't realize when they bought it, but it's actually like a weed smoking pipe. Uh, so it's got <laughs> kind of so like a many coffee tables right now. Yeah. That's some good A twenty four marketing. Cool. They're good at that. Yeah, just a very solid horror movie. Okay, I have only one outlier. I'm realizing now on my own list. Um, it's probably because I'm the only person who saw it. <laughs> uh, it's called Shin Ultraman. Um, one of the earliest movies I saw in 2023, but it really stuck with me. It was my number six for the year. It can sound daunting because there's now three Shin movies. There's Shin Godzilla, Shin Ultraman, and Shin Kamen Rider. It sounds like, oh, I got to catch up with all this stuff to just watch one of them. They're all standalone movies. Mm -hmm. Like They're all individual properties. The word Shin just means new. Uh, So it's like a reboot of these old tokusatsu properties, um, which are like the Godzilla style of Japanese um, special effects filmmaking. So like giant monsters attacking cities strange colors from like 2d animation on top of like live action you know film cells it's it's like a old vintage form of media that's probably most popular in america from not only the american godzilla movies but also from the power rangers which was a japanese tokusatsu show that they added american characters onto like when they took off their helmets suddenly (laughs) like they just inserted these like american Mm. teens into those storylines um ultraman is one of the more popular characters in that style he's four children like there used to be a power ranger style show where ultraman who looks like a power ranger but is godzilla size he like hits a little button on his watch and turns into kaiju size and then fights godzilla style monsters cool uh this series is overseen by hideaki ano who's most popular for um neon genesis evangelion Mm -hmm. popular anime series I did not watch that series until after I fell in love with his Shin Godzilla movie, um, which is a very cynical movie about how a modern government bureaucracy would respond to Godzilla. And there's a lot of like jokes about the inefficiency of government as this like evolving creature keeps attacking in these different forms and like they can't keep up with it. Shin Ultraman is also about bureaucracy, but it's kind of humanist and kind in a way that Shin Godzilla isn't. Um, It's about these kind of like go-getter people pulling all their resources to try to tackle this impossible series of kaiju attacks. And we are saved by an alien creature named Ultraman who, you know, does the kaiju thing, um, who just thinks that we're cute. He's like, oh, humans are worth saving. They're, they have this like go-getter spirit. They're basically ants to me, but <laughs> I'm going to save them because I find them adorable. And I think there's something about their like spirit that's like worth preserving and not just letting the earth be run over by all these monsters. And it's got a lot of retro 60s kitsch that like old school Japanese pop art eye candy. It's very fun. It's very psychedelic. There's some weird moments of kink too. Like um, one of the humans... Shin Ultraman is flirting with um, gets turned into a kaiju size herself and it briefly becomes like softcore giant test porn for like five minutes of the movie, <laughs> which wow. is very funny. Wonderful. And the movie knows what it's doing. Like uh, Hideaki Anno is very playfully perverted in all of his work, mm-hmm. even though this kind of feels like it's four children. It's got kind of a hard edge from him. He didn't direct this one, but he wrote and produced it. And he did a lot of the mocap movements for Ultraman himself. So he's still involved oh, wow. in the film. Mm. Um, I could talk about this forever, so I think maybe <laughs> I will 
make y'all watch another movie from the series for our honorable mentions episode so we can really dive into it cool wonderful but to prevent me from talking forever because we still have plenty to go (laughs) let's get to britney's number three for the year which is our highest ranking outlier oh okay my number three is um bo is afraid oh back to hereditary yeah (laughs) back to the ariaster I don't, I love love this. It was like a demented um, journey fairy tale from hell that I totally dove in, like embraced. Where it really showed to me, like as somebody who like suffers from like anxiety, like what that feels like, and then also like made me anxious watching it because all the shit that like goes on in your head is like also real life like Mm -hmm. at first i was like is this just him imagining all this shit or is this like really playing out and i mean i still don't 100 percent know the answer to it um (laughs) i mean but it what's the point of like interpreting the reality of the movie like it just is what it is on screen (laughs) you know right um i loved like all the little people the little folks and families that he meets on his way to his mother's funeral. And there's this part where a lot of people, it was like their least favorite part of this film. And it was my favorite is this really cool, like tale, like puppet show done to show his like journey. Like I thought it was like so creatively done where it felt like, I don't know, like watching, it felt like very PBS to me, (laughs) which I like a lot. (laughs) That was also my least favorite part of the really? movie. Really? I enjoyed yeah, it. I, I didn't. It reminded me of Bjork's Bachelorette music video, which is like this Michelle Gondry music video yes. that's very meta and layered and like goes like Russian nesting doll, like story within a story yes. deep. And it's just like, I saw that done in like five minutes with like this beautiful Bjork song. And instead in Bill is Afraid, it's like, it's very long. The part of the movie for me <laughs> that I loved was the beginning, the urban hellscape. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. So the, like, the, don't like, leave your apartment. <laughs> I don't know. Just like you go online, you see videos about like, oh, San Francisco, like <laughs> their junkies are everywhere. And like, just capturing that feeling of being in urban decay yeah. and being scared to just leave your apartment. Yeah, that's what that, my papa thinks New Orleans is dude, like that, right now. Dude, that captured that anxiety <laughs> yeah. better than anything I've seen in a long time. I love that it doesn't stop there, too. Like, it is what conservatives think about, about, like, city <laughs> yes. living. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, like, what the hellscape of... But also, like, me going outside sometimes, we're like, I don't want to fucking talk to anybody. Like, <laughs> and, right. Like, I'm dodging eye contact with, like, strangers. And then also... It moves from there to the suburbs and shows what like security freaks and like war adult gun nuts are living out there and they get their own problems in suburbia. And then in the woods, there's all these militia weirdos (laughs) who've like tried to like go off the grid and like become, you know, their own little armies. Like the artist collective types. And then you get the final boss is like the wealthy (laughs) elite who uh, like really isolated themselves and these like little fake communities where they yep. don't even have to leave leave their houses but their own mental illnesses have like developed into <laughs> this like weird lore uh where they're just like stuck inside their own little gilded cages yes and it's like a very cynical rattled portrait of life in america right now and i think when you take all those different forms of american living it's like one big picture i don't know it's a very funny worst case scenario like least kind portrait of like yeah. what life we're living right now it's shitty everywhere and then you have your mother 
Your mom, yeah. where, where, where it all comes down to. Or yeah. your father, who might be even worse if you think right. about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, the Patty Lapone twist and performance at the end when he actually, like, makes it to, like, her funeral. Yeah. And, like, all these, like, mommy issues he's been having. Mm-hmm. And she and Parker Posey both come in the final oh, hour to give the best And they deliver. In the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so does his dad. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It. It's just such a weird ass fucking movie that is really, really hard to describe to people. And I love it for that. To me, this is kind of like, I don't know. Ari Aster is a very interesting director. Demented. Yeah. And like, I still think he's (laughs) kind of finding his way a little bit. This to me kind of felt like Paul Thomas Anderson when he did Magnolia Mm. Huge sprawling three hour play and like yeah I rewatched it recently it's like it's messy as fuck a mess yeah throwing shit at the wall but it's very creative and that's kind of what Bo was afraid felt like for me like there's pockets of like really genius stuff going on but it's a lot yeah and not all of it works but as a total package very interesting and like he is going to make if this was his attempt at his masterpiece I don't think he really nailed it but it's going to happen yeah. like he is a very talented director with great ideas and i'm excited to see what he does beyond this yeah yeah i just like to live in his imagination for a while like and you know midsummer was created this like folk world that was obviously more grounded in reality but still has these like beautiful like flourishes in there like the, the clothes that they wear in this village that they've created in this like really kind of um, strange society. And then Hereditary is like absolutely dreadful. And this was like a total brain explosion. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I don't know. It's like, I don't think this was on my top 20, but it was like fantastic. Like probably the strangest movie i saw this year just in the expanse of imagination and the resources that he had to like bring that to life and i don't know i i think i don't want to talk about the last scene i feel like that could still be you know a spoiler but the the joke of like him trying to please his mother like that is such a common like anxiety. Yeah. I don't know for me and for a lot of people and just the exaggeration in this film of like what that means for him based on who his mother is, is, I don't know. I just thought it was like a very funny exponentiated anxiety. It's like Patty LuPone was like the Von Erich dad. <laughs> I was actually- he was like, one of the the Von Erich boys, but no brothers. I was actually thinking of Anatomy of a Fall, like putting on trial Ooh. these like private moments and right. these like personal failures yeah. that are like blown way out of proportion. Exactly. Like say something about you as a right. person instead of how you react yeah. in the moment. And it's I feel like everybody has been through that. Like it's like you do this little this little thing, and it's like ah, you know this like it becomes this huge grievance, but like. Yeah taken out to the 10th degree uh, for uh, poor Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I, and I love it. Yeah. Are you getting lazy? Clear blue sky, but it rains all the late fees. Did you get the payment? We had an arrangement. We don't want to watch the news. We just read to Yeah, do you want to 
Well, it looks like this beach is a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beat you off with you any day, Ken. Hold my ice cream, Ken. All right, Ken, you're on. Let's beach off. Anyone who wants to beach him off has to beach me off first. I will beach both of you off at the same time. But you don't even know how to beach yourself off. How are you going to beach oh, both of us off? It doesn't make sense. Ken? Why are you going to beach both of us off? Nobody's going to beach anyone off. I already talked a little bit about Godzilla earlier, but it's immediately coming up again. Because on my number 10 and James's number 6, Godzilla reigns supreme. Godzilla minus one that we saw in theaters together. I cried in I public. Cried. At a Godzilla movie. I cried. I was right next to you and I cried too. Just bros being bros. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I haven't watched as many of the new Godzillas as you have. So I was kind of like going in blind to this and just immediately I was like, oh, this is like very good filmmaking. It felt like Steven Spielberg or somebody was Mm. directing a Godzilla movie on like, I think it was on a $15 million budget and it looks gorgeous and this the score is very moving it's like this repetitive motif throughout the film and the fight scenes are great it's got this really cool story about this kamikaze kind of disgraced kamikaze pilot who wants to redeem himself post war yeah it's really sweet it's moving it's got huge action scenes and it was great to see in a theater this is probably like my favorite theater experience of the year. Like seeing the big fucking monsters <laughs> on the giant screen and like destroying cities. Yeah. While also having like moments that will bring you to tears was a very fulfilling experience. I'm a simple man. If you put <laughs> right. a big monster on the screen, I'm already happy, you know? But this was a, a cut above most movies in, in that genre. And I was. Talking earlier about Tokusatsu throwbacks in particular with Shin Ultraman and like the Shin Ultraman, Shin Godzilla, Shin Kamen Rider, and then a couple other movies that are actually about to come up. Like there are a lot of good retro throwbacks to that old Godzilla style of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. None of them do what this one does though, where it's like very sincere. This is the 70th anniversary of the original Godzilla film and it's dialing the clock all the way back to World War II and getting back to what the monster was before he became the hero to children everywhere. Right. <laughs> it was the fear of the atomic weapon which this you know and with Oppenheimer being you know on everyone's tongue like this also kind of talks about post World War II like how devastated Japan was and the fear of you know Godzilla or this weapon of being used again. So it has this like kind of political backstory, but then this very human story. Yeah. That's where the emotion comes in is like, it's easy to be emotional about something when it's not commenting on a culture. It's like about this one man's personal journey, which, you know, it's hard to do that scale when you're talking about a Godzilla movie, but it's a, it's a kamikaze pilot who dodged his mission to kill himself for his country. Um, and he sees Godzilla's emergence as like an opportunity to redeem himself and kill himself for Japan. You know, it's like a second chance. And everyone around him, the whole movie is like, what the fuck are you doing? We want <laughs> you to live. We want good things for you. Do not kill yourself for this like imagined version of like wartime valor. War is hell. All of us hated it. We're glad it's over. Don't relive this just to feel better. And he sort of starts this very communal family um, 
like a chosen family chosen family kind of thing which i love the chosen family trope and like there's a very heartwarming reveal at the end about a character you think is gone and they come back where just like that's when i started oh yeah and it's so manipulative because like you're like what the fuck there's no way that they survive that but they do because it's movie magic and yeah, th- this whole movie was just movie magic. I also me. cried at the big reveal, even though I saw it coming. Like they telegraph it in this wide shot where you like see what the like surprise is supposed to be. But when it happened, I cried anyway because the music was so touching and it was just like, pulling tears out of me like a magnet. Mm. Like I couldn't help but like, feel <laughs> yeah. emotional. Um, the score is very good, and you know it, it has motifs pulled from the original Godzilla score. Yes. Yeah, but it also has this like kind of Philip Glass like mathematical like build cool. to it that like really gets your emotions up yeah it's a really well-made movie cool sounds amazing yeah um kind of on the other end of like monsters that i enjoyed when i was a child uh pleasing Mm -hmm. me again uh my number seven and hana's number six for the year brought me back to that childhood feeling too hell yeah teenage mutant ninja turtles so (laughs) mutant mayhem mutant mayhem so we covered a tmnt movie earlier this year i had Never watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as a child. Watching that movie was my first exposure to the turtles. Um, so this is the second Turtles movie I've seen, and I loved it. Hell it is yeah. an animated film. Uh, Seth Rogen was behind a lot of it. I think the director is Jeff Rowe. But it, it's like a total reboot. Um, the turtles are teens. They're living in the sewer with their rat daddy, uh, who is voiced by Jackie Chan. Uh, he learned <laughs> cool. Kung Fu um, from watching old like Hong Kong Kung Fu movies from and like martial Jackie arts Chan videos. Movies. Yeah, including <laughs> Jackie Chan. And um, the the movie is mostly surrounding like community and acceptance and finding finding family and and finding um like being accepted by the the world at large. So they're like hiding in the sewers. They attempted to come up to the surface at some point and they like everybody freaked out at seeing a rat man. They chased um, Jack, uh, Splinter and the turtles back to the sewers. Now there is um, this villain named Superfly that nobody has seen who is stealing like mechanized parts from this um, government organization the turtles think that if they can, they team up with April, who wants to like write a story about um, and expose Superfly to like be accepted at school because she's a total pariah. And the turtles want to catch Superfly so that like the people of New York will love them. Um, and as they're going, they find like that Superfly is a mutant. He has a cadre of mutants. And like this is potentially a found family. They are also feeling ostracized and want to like kill all humans. Because they're basically. all disgusting. They're, yeah, all, these, they're like, all nasty. Goopy character designs of like these like little freaky right. frogs and warthogs and like But, but yeah. even even the humans in this film are disgusting. Nasty. Yeah, yeah, it's a nasty movie. I love it. Yeah. So the story is <laughs> the story is really touching. I cried a couple of times, but it is also just like one of the most beautiful animated films I've watched all year. The art style is so interesting. It's like um, kind of like the Spider-Man um, films, like the last uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, Mitchell versus the Machine. Yeah, I think it's Sony has that animation studio where yeah. they're like. 
have added an extra layer, like instead of everything being rounded out and smooth in that Pixar mm-hmm. style, they're leaving rough edges for people to draw hand-drawn details yeah. on top of the um, the 3D animation cells. Yeah. So everything has this kind of personal grimy touch right. to it. And this movie goes for a kind of like a 80s and 90s hip-hop graffiti yeah, um, totally. touch to that and like adds this kind of like layer of like New York City grime on top yeah. of that, that Spider-Verse animation style. Yeah, it's like very like like dark with like neon lights like the there's a almost like a colored pencil texture so it's like very gritty and slick and wet yeah the mutants are like dripping with stuff and like engorged or like scrawny and and disgusting and i don't know i mean it was just a such a fun beautiful like fast-paced film the four turtles have excellent chemistry together they're played by four teens and they just feel like teenagers they really want to go to prom that's like one of the <laughs> reasons teen- they want to like save the city yeah. so that, that prom is, will happen that is the main thing i loved about the like teenage mutant ninja turtles it's always been in yeah. the name and yet no film before this one has really like delved into them feeling like teenagers like we watched the original we did like a product placement episode for that one yeah, yeah. and, they, and they, they were like kind of like slacker stoner bro kind of thing going on in there but they didn't really feel like teens well it's like they're feel like, like older guys than the kids watching the movie yeah. yeah so like yeah. the kids watching the movie are looking up and it's like that's what i want to be in a few years but they're all played by adult actors but this felt like actual like teenage mutant ninja turtle with teenage problems and, you know, teenage motivations, it was just like a revelation of like, yeah, teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, not early 20s mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. Yeah, college dropout Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah. and, and that and that aesthetic of like the pre-Giuliani New York grime mm-hmm. before everything got cleaned up. Like th- those two like aesthetics just worked so well. Which is doubled down on in the soundtrack. There's a lot of like Tribe Called Quest and like Annie Up and you know a lot of like mm. 90s New York City hip hop needle drops. Also though, and this is like my favorite detail of the whole movie, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the soundtrack. And if you pay attention to their filmography as a duo doing soundtracks, especially their work with Fincher, I keep hearing that they're like the best in the game and I watch the movies and I don't think there's a lot of like personality there where I can recognize mm-hmm. their version of like ambient synth tension as opposed to any other composer doing that but in this one it sounds like a fucking nine inch nail song it's like the most trent reznor has ever sounded like himself on a soundtrack uh between the all all the old school hip-hop songs there's a lot of industrial driving percussion to the score and it it just really is my favorite trent reznor score i've ever heard in a movie Mm. which is really strange to say about this like children's animated film you know (laughs) yeah I have to say, too, so, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles very much teens, but also, like, with the ninja, like, the chore- the fight choreography in the movie is really fun. It's been John too. Wickified. Right. It's, <laughs> it is, like, so pleasing to watch, and they have, like, a lot of, I mean, the choreography mimics a lot of the Jackie Chan movies that we've watched. Like, they use, uh, you know, like, miscellaneous objects in their fights, like, the shot will stay on. There are no like quick cuts. It stays on the action so you can really see what's happening, which is obviously easier in an animated movie. There's one scene in particular where they're fighting 
they have to go and fight five different people and they show the fight as a one continuous shot like cycling through each of the fights like continuously so it's like a seamless transition from like this mob boss who's like a work or this guy who's working in a mattress store and it's really like it's just so visually interesting and fun so it's just like i thought it was really funny i thought it was beautiful it was exciting um animation was great and it had a lot of heart too like the last like the boss sequence is just very heartwarming and also like fun and wild. Let's keep up the revisiting my childhood nostalgia, uh, but you're going to talk about it instead of me. <laughs> okay. uh, there's a Power Rangers riff in our overlap. Uh, my number eight, James's number eight, and Honda's number five. Oh, okay. This is um, smoking causes coughing. Uh, I guess we also saw this at Overlook. Yeah. That's yeah. why I thought it was French Film Festival. We did a double saw- feature of this one and Five Devils back to back. Yeah. So this um, is by Quentin Depew, who I love. He also did um, Deer Skin. It is about these uh, this set of crime fighters, and they are like uh, cigarette theme like they fight monsters the tobacco force or something like that right and they they fight monsters with all of the like harmful chemicals (laughs) carcinogens (laughs) right (laughs) um and it's it has the quentin depew like i just feel like he has this sense of humor that is just like deflates these people that are having big moments like they're the scene or the movie opens with this like family driving and they see this like like Ginyu Force-esque crew, the tobacco force fighting this like turtle who's kind of in a Tortoise. Yeah, Tortoise <laughs> in this like gross, weird, rubbery suit. And it's like they cut back and forth between like the fighting and the onlookers and like it feels like a cinematic fight for the tobacco force but from like a hundred feet away they're just kind of like beating up a, a turtle and it's very <laughs> deflating there's lots of um lots of uh blood explosions i don't know it's but the it follows them going on this like retreat to reconnect to foster group cohesion they yeah. go on like a work retreat right and th- their group is the leader is this like like disgusting horrible rat a splinter type right who <laughs> drooling, drooling constantly <laughs> like just the most disgusting it's just like uh it's it's like making all of these um like beloved franchises like disgusting and kind of pathetic um but they go on this retreat and they're like telling they have these anecdotes about like to pass the time of so essentially they're talking they're telling these anecdotes that seemingly have no real relationship with it's each like other. It's like an Are You Afraid of the Dark situation where they get around a campfire and like try to tell each other the scariest story they right. can remember. And yeah. it's these little vignettes of like little absurdist situations that could each be their own Quentin Depew movie. Like they could yeah. each be a 70 minute idea. Instead, he like gives it to you in seven minutes. And, and that's why I was hesitant. I wasn't hesitant to watch it, but like I was so high on deer skin and what I had heard was kind of the vignette kind of nature of it. I, I I don't know. It just didn't appeal to me at the time. But when I finally did sit down to watch it, 
It was like watching like an episode of SNL where like every segment is a banger. They're all funny. And they're all funny. And like this one, it was all funny. And especially the like thinking helmet and the one with the wood chipper. uh, Oh, that's hilarious. Were two of the fun, like the funniest shit I've seen all year. So like for a 70 minute movie and it has like four vignettes and two of them are the funniest thing you've seen all year. I don't know. That's a, that's a winner right there. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the thinking helmet, there's this crew of like young, wealthy (laughs) people at this like Airbnb and they find this huge, strange, like dome. It almost looks like a submarine helmet, but it looks like it's super long. Like it looks like a half of a pill. (laughs) And this, woman puts it on and immediately she is like it allows her to look at her friends from like a an objective perspective and she's like i hate these people i don't know why i spend time with them what am i doing this guy's such an asshole and then (laughs) why am i dating him it just keeps like it shifts to them looking at her just sitting alone in this corner with this huge like horrifying (laughs) helmet like weird helmet on anyway it's it's such a strange movie. It feels like just like somebody swept up like the scraps of like the Power Rangers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and and just like put it in a pile and like mishmashed it together. And like there's like seemingly no drive or objective for these people except to kind of like get through this retreat and get get back to work like it's but it just is so funny and kind of pathetic and and interesting yeah it doesn't have this like overall narrative in the way that like deerskin does but that is kind of what makes it special is how playful it is and he seems to just be experimenting and having a good time and like yeah I have this funny idea and I mean, you turn it into a 10 minute thing his brain's kind of been on fire like that lately like he made rubber over a decade ago. And that's a movie that like made a name for him. He started as a DJ named Mr. Oizo. Yeah. Who had like very funny music videos with a puppet, you know, that made a name for him earlier than that. But rubber was a movie about a killer car tire that had telekinetic powers and could explode people with its quote unquote mind, even though it was a tire. And like, that's a premise that sounds like it would wear itself out pretty thin quickly, but he delivers it in a feature length in a way that becomes about, its own absurdity and becomes about how empty of an idea it is. And then I want to say in the past six years, he's just cranking out two or three movies a year that are all like that. They're all kind of genius. I still haven't seen the one about the giant fly. Mandibles, which is very good. Uh, And it's got two actors from this movie, from the thinking helmet sequence, Mm. including Adele Xartopoulos, Mm -hmm. who's amazing and is also in five Five Devils. devils. And yeah, I just think he's like cranking out ideas faster than his productions can actually keep up with. And this felt like he probably had four or five different scripts that like, he wasn't working fast enough to produce them. (laughs) So he kind of like gathered all those scraps in like one big container. And that's pretty inspiring. Yeah. Just like they can't keep up. He's got too many surreal, absurdist comedic ideas. And they're generally pretty funny. Like they are. Yeah. Yeah. I just think he has one of the most unique like senses of humor of any director I know of that's working right now. Like ev- just every movie that I've watched from him, except actually maybe rubber was maybe my least favorite, but they all just like tickle me. I love like how 
absurd his films are. I think we generally agree Deerskin is our, is our favorite oh, yeah. as a group. That was our number one yeah. that year. It's a great yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, let's go continue on with directors with very clear visions. Uh, my number four <laughs> and James's number four. That is a director at the height of her powers. Oh, damn. I did love Priscilla. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise yourself. I had to look at my I was like, what, what was my number four? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, Sofia Coppola. Um, man, what to say about this? We already did a full conversation I, about it. <laughs> yeah, we, me and Brandon talked about it at length. I don't want to like rehash any of that stuff, but like she, and I think you said this, like I kind of forget how good of a director she is. We're like, she'll release a movie and it kind of is on the back burner. And then I go see, I'm like, holy shit, that was really good. And that's definitely what Priscilla was. It's such, and I, I'm really kind of into the, Elvis mythology. I think it's fascinating as a microcosm of like American fame and myth. And this sort of explores like what it is like to be married to someone like that and how alienating it can be and how sad and lonely. And a lot of this movie is Priscilla just sitting in opulence alone, trying to find something to do. I mean, that's what Sofia Coppola does is like that's boredom and isolation of like female adolescence. Like that is her sweet spot. But something about this like particular Elvis aesthetic with those sim- like ideas that she's been exploring for a while. Um, it just really, it really moved me. It's a really like low key, sad, lonely picture. And it is eventually cathartic where it's not like a huge blow up or anything. She just kind of tells Elvis, um, I'm ready to like have my own life. I'm yeah. done living in your shadow. She gets the grace that Charles Melton's character in May December doesn't get where she like actually becomes an adult. Yes. Yes. And then she is able to disengage. But in it in the film is shot beautifully a lot of like pink shag carpets and you know she's got these very beautiful dresses and close-ups of her putting on the um eyeliner wingtips and like God. very yeah. loving um that sensual. one room. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> with the like black satin bed mm. like i know isn't it based off i've never read it but like every woman in my family has a copy of the elvis and me book from the 80s from priscilla presley yeah. yeah and i've never read it so i don't know if it's like very exact to this well um priscilla presley herself is an executive producer on the movie and oh, had yeah. some influence and, on the story and she did say after it came out like this is as close as you're gonna get to mm, kind of what it that. felt like we're basically like, after watching this, I'm like, okay, so Graceland was like a zoo and Priscilla Presley was the animal trapped in the zoo. It's like, she could not get out of Graceland. <laughs> and she's like, just meant to be this object wearing what he likes. She's a yeah. doll on his shelf. Only solid mm. colors. Yeah. Lame. Uh, it- Black hair. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, it felt like a like a case. Yeah. And you do, you do get a couple scenes of Elvis being outright abusive, like throwing a chair yeah. at it. But- a lot of it is just that subtle, like, oh, I don't like that. That that doesn't fit you. You need to change. Right. That it's dress. even weirder too when you realize he's trying to model her to look like his mom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is very strange. And they get into the sex stuff. <laughs> like he wanted to keep her kind of virgin. Yeah. Like and so yeah, there's sex Madonna life. complex. Suffered. Also, like I like how they still fuck, but in ways that are not penetrative sex. Like. The way that they photograph each other in, in like kinky outfits with the mm-hmm. Polaroid, like that is a sex scene. That's a sexy scene. Even though there's no too. penetrative like yeah. aspect to it. And I'm sure for her, like that probably is a good memory. Like that yeah. seems like a good time. And I, I like that aspect too, where 
it didn't feel overly dramatic. It felt like how a relationship probably does start to fall apart where they're yeah. just slowly growing apart, even though they're still have some good times sprinkled throughout. And then she eventually just is like, no, I'm it felt realistic it. where it's like, okay, we're not going to paint like Elvis. Wasn't like just this. I mean, obviously he wasn't the best. Right. But there were good moments that they both had with each other. And you felt like the goodness from it, from those scenes where, yeah. Okay, they're actually having fun. They're at a pool. They're having a good time. And you can see like why maybe you would want to stick around a little longer than yeah. you probably should. Especially, you know. But also his like jackass friends hanging around oh, like the boys. Getting, yeah, the boys <laughs> getting drunk, shooting guns, and Saturday she's just standing is there, like, for the boys every God, day. <laughs> damn, I got to deal with these dudes oh, every fucking I day. Feel so funny. yeah, that's when I'm like, oh god, girl, get out, get out of here. <laughs> but Jacob Elordi's performance, like I've really haven't seen him in a lot but he was a fabulous elvis he did a good job of like getting the essence without impersonating you know yes. it's not like he's doing an exact impersonation but oh, he had a good elvis mumble oh oh, oh, oh i want to <laughs> be a daddy, I wanna be yeah. a daddy. <laughs> <laughs> he gets the essence and like he gets the allure like you know why people would flock to go right and worship at his feet and also like even though he was elvis like it showed how absent elvis was from priscilla where I almost feel like his mumbliness in this movie was to show like how like mu- how less of like a real person Elv- Elvis was like in her life. Like well, he just how- felt like this faded idea. Also, how pilled out he is all the time. Like he no, takes pills too. every thirty seconds. Yeah, <laughs> he's just kind of mumbling his way through uh, the uh, dead space between his concerts. Yeah. Well, let's get into another very realistic breakup drama. Uh, James's number Ooh. nine and Britney's number two. Oh my god, Infinity Pool! Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, breakup drama, but like resort <laughs> yeah, hotel drama, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That this was one where I when it came out in like February of 2023 or Jan, like Jan, it came out really early. Yeah. It was early, yeah. And it stuck in my head like throughout the whole year, where I'm like, that was such a good damn movie, and every Jamesy time, Jamesy. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah, yeah your name. <laughs> just my name. That way. Like, oh, Jesus watching Christ. this in the theater with you, with Mia Goth saying your name in the most annoying ways possible. <laughs> the creepiest One of the highlights way. of the year for me. Yeah, I, I knew that was going to be top 10 material. I was like, well, I, I can't get this movie Actually, Hannah does brain. the best impersonation. <laughs> Jamesy Wamesy. <laughs> oh, it's so god, good. People of that. the bus. <laughs> Please surrender the coward James Foster. <laughs> I just feel like this was such a creative... Bad shit, crazy it bad movie. Shit. This is a crazy fucking. It's funny. It is it's funny. It's funny, but it's so freaking cool. Like the mm-hmm. idea, like and it's gross as fuck. It's disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> there's um that scene where they're going through that process. That like I know it's not real, but I still don't understand it. Well, the idea is that it's not explained, right? Like, right. The reason that. They're the only people in the world that can clone a human being is that everyone else is too literal and, my, and thinks my, about it too much. Yes. Like in my mind, I'm like, well, how would that even be possible? Um, but there's this cool scene where just like, I think it's like her nipples just start shooting out like ooh, like green slime. Oh, yeah. They're on hallucinogenic mushrooms or Wild. some kind of root oh, that, that makes that, you the orgy, Like a 10 minute orgy <laughs> scene or they're on acid. and. Uh, well, yeah. okay. The premise is that these rich people are on this resort that they go to every year in, I believe like Eastern Europe. Yes. Um, and the idea is that while they're there, they commit these like heinous crimes. Um, it starts with a hit and run in the film, but it's been going on longer than that. 
uh, because the local government, as long as you have enough money, instead of killing you for your crimes, you will pay for a double to be created, a clone of your body, mm-hmm. yeah. to suffer the consequences. And what the rich people find is that they enjoy watching their clones get killed. Yeah. And they start committing more crimes just to enjoy the experience of seeing their clones get murdered ritualistically. And then in the meantime, between the crime and punishment, they also like to have hallucinogenic orgies in the hotel rooms. Of course. A bunch of hedons, like, it's it's a good, I don't know, like, if, if I think of, like, what, like, <laughs> Epstein Island is or the ultra-rich, <laughs> right. like, that's what I think of, just a bunch of gross fucks that are so obsessed with the gross shit and the horrible shit that they could do. Um, because they're, it's this power thing. Like, they're like, we can do this because we have enough money to, and this is something we have access to. So let's just do it over and over again. We don't care about who we harm in the process. We'll fucking kill people just so we can get a clone to then get killed. And there's also something about, you know, because like having money can shield you from accountability for a lot of things. And it does in this case too, but it's like they, get off on seeing themselves punished for the crimes that they're committing. It's like, like the accountability is happening, but not to them. And there's Hmm. something that they like enjoyable about that. Sickos. And that commentary about like using another country as your playground, Mm -hmm. like consequence free, just like ruining lives for your own entertainment. Sandals. (laughs) It's it's real. What real resorts are doing. A fake world resort in a real place that, is economically dependent upon you. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that actually was the movie's Achilles heel when it comes to like the discourse around it. And like, it came out around the time where the menu was oh. being seen by a lot of people. White Triangle Lotus was on sadness. TV. Triangle of sadness. So like th- that eat the rich satire was a little oversaturated. And I think the movie suffered a lot of stray bullets White from that. White Lotus too. Yeah. yeah. I think Triangle of oh, sadness in this time. one also got more guff than the rest of those because it's grotesque. I personally like something like this that's grotesque and not subtle. (laughs) Yes. But a lot of people prefer subtlety and restraint over, you know, entertainment. I don't get it. But I think the difference with this one is it's not just about that. It's like Brandon Cronenberg wrote this between his first movie, Antiviral, and his second movie, um, Possessor. Possessor, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's a long gap between those two films. And he wrote this script before Possessor. And it's about this guy who is kind of a Nepo baby and yeah. like living on someone else's dime who can't get his second project off the ground is like creatively <laughs> frustrated and has writer's block. And in order to torment himself about this frustration, he creates this dominatrix character in Mia Goth who's like eating fried chicken and champagne and like whipping him in the streets and like, it's a very funny movie about writer's block and privilege to me. I mean, it, it's <laughs> yeah. not just Eat the Rich. There's this extra layer about Brandon Cronenberg's career that makes it like even funnier to me. Yeah, I, I think it's a really funny, fucked up movie. Yep. And the orgy scenes aren't just like straightforward, like flesh on display. It really gets in this like ethereal color swirls and like uh, confusing hallucinogenic sequences that feel like pure cinema for a few stretches and then you go back to like on the drab prison mm-hmm. of that resort uh it's a really like visually interesting movie as well and I, you know i don't mind if it was a little maybe a little oversaturated with the eat the rich thing but i could do with like one fucked up the rich are awful movie every single year yeah, yeah. yeah. it's refreshing <laughs> yeah yeah it's a nice palate cleanser yeah we got to keep them in their place <laughs> our next movie is another kind of like isolated location thriller 
Britney's number four and my number two was The Royal Hotel. Oh. Uh, this is a movie about um, two American tourists who are in Australia in Sydney, like on the coast, and they run out of money. So they apply for work permits um, to earn enough money to go back home. And they get assigned a barmaid job in the middle of the outback, like way inland, like isolated, no way out of town. And they're going to work the bar for this community of miners. It's a bunch of very gruff working class men who surround these two young 20-something women. Um, One of them is played by Julia Garner, and the other one is Jessica Henwick. Uh, the director is Kitty Green, who um, also did The Assistant, which is a pretty popular movie from a few years ago. I also really like her movie, Casting Jean Benet, that was on Netflix. It's a really fucked up one. Um, this movie reminded me a lot of Alex Garland's Men, in that there are a bunch of like toxic men <laughs> surrounding the two women. and like, her. Ba- basically, they're all trying to have sex with the two barmaids, because they're the only two women in town, and they're... Ways of enforcing their like sexual behavior on these two women who are not particularly interested in any of them yeah. is like a chokehold thriller. Like the tension of them being surrounded by all these people who want to fuck them and are willing to manipulate their way into these two girls like private spaces to have an opportunity to do so oh, is so fucked up. And the way it reminds me of men is that they're all trying to achieve the same goal but in very different ways and they're very different personality types. And I think the extra layer that this adds on that maybe is more interesting than what Alex Garland did is, well, I guess maybe there's two. One is that this is actually like a true story. There's a documentary mm-hmm. called Hotel Cool Garde. Which I did watch after oh, wow. It's maybe even more fucked up. It's than more fucked up than the movie. Film. Yeah. Because yeah. it's oh kind of filmed like a TLC reality TV show, which almost and makes it, the tension weirder. And it's sort of uh, not played for laughs, but it's... There's like, like a reality said, a TLC, show. Like it's a reality show. Gawking like, aspect oh, to man, it. Oh, man, this, this is crazy. Down in the outback. They, it's like, these women are in danger. <laughs> yeah. The other layer, though, is like... The women's response to this, it's not just that they're isolated and that they are like trying to survive. There's two responses. One is Julia Garner's character is like, we need to make it through, stay sober while all these people are getting drunk and trying to like isolate us. Yeah. Jessica Henwick's character, on the other hand, is like, you know what? I don't really like being alive very much. I'm not enjoying my time on earth. I'm just going to get drunk and whatever happens to my body happens. And like her friend is like trying to pull her back from that like, you know, black hole of like depression and like trying to like make her want to live instead of like drinking alcohol and like becoming part of this raucous, destructive energy around her. Cause all the men drink until blackout rage every single night. And it's like a self-destructive communal event every 24 hours. And I found the, experience of watching this in the theater to be one of the most thrilling hundred minutes of the year for me. Like I was just like holding my breath the entire movie. Like what terrible thing is going to happen to these women? And most of it is like, yeah, the men are terrifying, but it's like inward. It's like, how are they going to like dredge up the fortitude to protect themselves from this outside threat? Yeah. It's like nothing gets executed that like, you know, will happen. Like it never happens, but just the tension from everyone is like fucking terrifying and it reminded me like a lot of times like you know like in college i was like the sober friend um for like big nights out like dd person 
And, like, when you're in a bar and there's a bunch of dudes that are, like, hitting on your blackout friend and you're like, mm-hmm. we're going now. She cannot make decisions right now. And then they're like, no, it felt so much, like, yeah. at the bar where I'm like, oh, my God, I have to get you into a car. And they're like, no, it's going to be fun. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, oh, no. Man. So, yeah, it's like all these gross hick men. And I'm like, they're, it, it just felt realistic, which obviously it mm-hmm. is. I'm like, there's this feral like they felt like wild animals and then like they're like no she's mine and it's like dude what are you talking about like they're fighting each yeah. over over them and they're like i'm not committed to any of you guys i just want to work at this bar to make some money it's so scary yeah and i think it captured the complexity of those dynamics too because like there's one guy that Julia Gardner's character is genuinely like kind of interested in who's like very charismatic and funny and like showing them around. There's one guy who's like mm. really terrifying that is interested in her friend. Yeah. Looks like Phil Collins a little bit. Yeah. But there's I mean, there's even a scene at, like Julia Gardner hates this guy that is like kind of hitting on her friend. But like there's one scene where a snake comes into the bar and she doesn't know what to do and he like he knows how to take care of it he goes and he grabs the snake and he like disposes of it so it's like they're dependent on these men for the money that they're getting to get out yeah they're also like in a in rural australia like they have no experience there and they're like real dangers that they don't know how to handle so it's like they are dependent on them and also they like enjoy some of their company, but it's they have to grapple with that and the predation. Yeah. And I also there's like this the way that they treat like the sort of native folks too. It just reminded oh, me yeah, like that racism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty gross. I'm like, this is so identical, even though you're in Australia. I feel like this is like what it's like in like a bumfuck town in Mississippi. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you're trapped, then it's just a bunch of like horned up dudes that don't know like how to treat women or like don't know how to act around women. I don't know. It felt very, very relatable, even though I've never been in Australia. <laughs> But the way that what's the blonde girl's name again? Julia Garner. Julia Garner. Her acting in here was so fucking good. Yeah. Where you can like feel the terror that she has, or it's like I can, you know they couldn't even like go to like bed because the room they're renting is like on top of this batshit bar that like everyone knows where they sleep. Like they yeah. know where you sleep. You can't yeah. escape. Ugh. It's so spooky. I don't know, like Hada knows this about me because. We date each other, but I have, yeah. I have a recurring, I like a recurring nightmare of essentially being in like a party that I can't leave or like a party that mm-hmm. is something turns and it goes from like fun to kind of eerie and like wrong and violent. And like, that's why I loved, uh, and the movie that this reminded me a lot of in that respect was mother yeah. of being in like a space and you're seeing people fucking up your shit and it's like the energy is bad. Yes. And it's like that turning from like a good time to a really bad time yeah. and you're like stuck in a space and you, you can't, can't get leave. out of it. And like that's why this movie gave me the heebie-jeebies. Like I felt so like in fear of these women like get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like burn the shit down. Do what you got to do. Oh, it felt so good um, when that did happen. But I that like that particular fear is so ingrained in me yeah. on a 
obviously like a subconscious level that yeah this movie definitely got to me that's why i don't go on cruises like could you imagine being stuck on a ship that you can't leave mm. and people yeah. go batshit like this i like that there's like chaos in it as well if you're talking about mother like there are moments in this movie that aren't really about the gendered metaphor either. It's just about the drunken chaos of the environment. Ugh. I'm thinking specifically when they look out their window and there's just a man running in the desert throwing <laughs> fireworks at the ground for no reason in particular. It's yeah. just like this menacing drunken chaos. Yes. So the movie's just as much about alcoholism as it is about yeah. it, it rem- the gender stuff. Because we, you know, in college you're at a party and the one dude gets a little too drunk and yeah, he's playing with a knife or he's got fireworks oh, or he's Brings out like a, a party one, like guy brought out his gun, was playing with it. That shit is so fucking scary. Yeah. Like get that away from me kind of energy. And this had a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can lighten the mood a little bit, but stay on the same track. Uh, this is another movie about people isolated in the middle of the desert. <laughs> nice. Oh. You thought of I these think I, I did not. I'm working, I'm working in, You're in working flow. You're working in real time? Wow. Uh, my number nine, James's number three, and Hannah's number two. Oh, okay. Asteroid City by Wes Anderson. So this is a um, play within a movie. So Asteroid City is like the play of, that is... It's within a, the framing device. It's like a documentary about a TV movie of a play. <laughs> and one of those things never was completed. Yeah. Like one of them's like a fake thing that never happened, but they're all fake because they're all made up. Right. So it's like, I mean, most of the movie takes place in the the play, which is um, Asteroid City is this like town in the 1950s. There's this like this asteroid that fell from the sky, this like little kind of black ball and um they have a uh young like scientist like astro scientist convention there every year so they um there's this collection of young intelligent like nasa teens and their families um coming to asteroid city um it's you know very twee very uh wes anderson desert edition and um, while they're at this convention, an alien comes down um, and picks up the little asteroid thing that <laughs> was in the in the middle of the town. It's the cutest alien, sweet, beautiful, big eyes, long limbs. Love those long legs. Yeah. Um, and he floats back up into the sky and uh, the town goes into quarantine. So there are um, all these families have come together for this convention um, there's this, uh, and it has an ensemble cast with like Scarlett Johansson and Tom Hanks and Jason Schwartzman, like all of these, like, I don't know, heavy hitters. And all of the families have like gone through one like instance of grief. Like Jason Schwartzman has lost his wife. Um, Scarlett Johansson is traveling alone. She's an actress and she has, I think she has like, she's just kind of has depressive thoughts and she like meets up with jason schwartzman and then their children like get together and like form bonds so all of these um all of these families are like connecting together during quarantine and then like the movie will kind of frame back out to like the making of the play or the production of the play um so it's a really it's a beautiful movie um and it has a lot of it deals with the creative process a lot like the the act 
of creating something and uncertainty about whether what you're creating is good or whether it matters or it's worthwhile. Uh, there's this moment towards the end of the movie where Jason Schwartzman is like in Asteroid City as the character and then breaks out of it and and just kind of like asks the writer if he's playing the character correctly, like if he's doing the role the way it needs to be done. And that's just like, I don't know, it's just this like super transcendent, beautiful moment for me. But it was just like a really beautiful, like picturesque, sweet story about like these families and connection and also like like making art and creating um creating something the two breaks from the narrative that like really spoke to me were both the one where jason schwartzman asked the playwright or the director of the play yeah why does this happen like what's the purpose of this what emotion am i trying to get across Mm -hmm. or should i even have something in mind should i just be reading the words as they are and let the play do its own thing and there's this other moment that's like a twilight zone break from reality where um part of the documentary all of the actors in the play are in a stanislavski style class in new york and they start chanting at the camera um you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep and the chant kind of like feels like i I mean this is me interpreting it but it feels like it's commenting on cinema being like this collective dream thing and like you can't make sense of something emotionally if you don't fully give into the fantasy of the narrative and just like forget about the real world logic and the yeah. words being said, what each individual image means, like forget all of that. Just like give yourself up to the emotion of the, the piece. And with this one and French dispatch, which was Wes Anderson's last movie, mm-hmm. it feels like he's really tinkering with why he makes the movies he does. Yeah. And he's like overcomplicating something that was already very complicated in his pictures. And to me, the French Dispatch was about particularly his movies as entertainments and about like how their delivery systems for comedy and like these like New Yorker style like flights of whimsy. And I, I really like that movie. I think it's very funny mm-hmm. and smart in that way. And generally, I like his movies a lot because they're funny. Like he makes very funny comedies. So like I really like the French Dispatch for that. And this one, it feels like the other side of his work where it's him trying to figure out what his movies mean as these like emotional kind of Trojan horses. Like why do I make the movies I make um, with all these very overly mannered people and these overly mannered like dollhouse environments? What am I trying to get to when I do that? And why does it make for these like emotional cathartic moments like uh, in Rushmore and in um, Royal Tenenbaums in particular, like the dog dies outside that um, wedding and like uh, Chaz, the, Ben Stiller character is like, I've had a very hard year. Yeah. It's like, we all have. The movie makes you like kind of break down and tear up, but you don't really know why. These are not real people. These are not a real scenario. And he's really picking at the mechanics of his work in that way. Well, and it's like the artifice, like his movie. And especially that's why I thought this was brilliant because Asteroid City is a city should not exist. It's just like, it's fake. Like it looks unreal. And then the framing device of like, the kind of play within a play and you're adding layers of like unreality Mm -hmm. on top of it. And yet it has like real soul and humanity. And yeah, I think he's like questioning, like, how do I do that? Where does that come from? I don't know. And that's really like, I thought this was probably the most like complex movie I saw this year. And 
thinking about all these themes about like him as a director and his artificiality and the way he stages things and him wrestling with the idea of movies and why do I make like just a lot to really chew on to where like after the movie, it was like I was ruminating on it for a long time. I watched this one twice in 24 hours where I went to the <laughs> oh, really? theater on like a weekend and I had the next day off work. So I watched it the next day I went to see past lives and then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna watch asteroid city a second time. So I could like dig Wild. into it more. Brittany, you watched this one with me at my house on New Year's Day, though. Yes, at uh, Brandon and Cece's movie Snackathon. <laughs> um, I just never thought of watching it. I'm not like a big Wes Anderson fan, and I'm like, oh, it's just going to be like people talking in a monotone way and things that look cute. I mean, it is was that. the expectation, yeah. <laughs> and it was that, but I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't think that I would have, but I really liked it. Um I thought it was all the characters were like super entertaining. I really love Scarlett Johansson. We even talked about how she's sort of like Marilyn Monroe and like don't bother to knock. Yeah, like, she's doing like and she's in the damn Marilyn. bathroom yeah. too. Yeah. Like serious Marilyn, um, the three little witch girls with like the Tupperware. Oh, they were all so good. They were so hilarious and like entertaining. But it was good. It was a good movie, and I think I'm like I don't know if I understand what's going on here until like the middle, and I'm like, oh, it's a movie about a play that's going to be a movie. Like I was <laughs> but, trying to connect the pieces. Know, it's like something about the layers of it's cool irony. though. Like you should be getting like more removed right. from the like heart and soul of what you're talking about. And yet yeah. somehow those layers make it more human. Yeah. And it's something about like how we all create artifices. And I think that goes to like Jason Schwartzman asking the director or like asking God, Am I playing this part right? And like, we're all playing a part. Yeah. So it's getting at something like very deeply human that I still can't quite articulate, but yeah. it was very moving. And the movie is constantly reminding you that like the players in the play are like that it is a play. This is not a real yes. city. And like reminding you of like, especially Jason Schwartzman, like not understanding his motivations and in, in one scene where he like burns his hand with a waffle iron or you know it's like but I never for a moment felt like they weren't real and that is like the magic of movies mm -hmm. too like just being fully invested in these characters as long as they are written with humanity yeah you fall asleep and like give yourself over to the dream of that reality and yeah. like yeah that's how you emotionally connect to something yeah whoa so our next movie, I mean, this is this is a pretty stellar transition here, if you want to call out these segues. Uh, also a high artifice scenario. Mm. Also where someone burns their hand on a sandwich griddle. That is, that is true. <laughs> my number three, Hannah's number three, and James's number two. Ennis Main, uh, which oh. I saw on my birthday this year. Also unexplainable, right? My birthday? No, I know why that happened. <laughs> I don't know if the narrative of Asteroid City and Ennis Main are explainable. I mean, I think this one's even more cryptic. This is the most cryptic fucking movie I've seen in a long time. <laughs> so I, I watched uh, Barry Jenkins, the director. I watched his other movie. Uh, Mark Jenkins. Mark Jenkins, not Barry Jenkins. <laughs> Different guy. Like, what? <laughs> that would be crazy. Man? Career swerve. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, I watched Bait earlier this year, his first movie, which has a lot of like aesthetically like camera choices and lenses. It's kind of 
similar, but this is so wildly, it's a head scratcher of a movie. And I love, you know, you're talking about Asteroid City and kind of giving yourself up to the dream of the film. This to me, like this was my number one all year until something else came Blank. out. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah. Very we'll we'll talk about it soon, but I was so high on this movie because you know, to even go into like the narrative doesn't really do it justice. Like, okay, you have a woman who is a she's alone on this island and she's doing like research and she kind of has it's this John Dealman sort of thing where it's the repetition, she does the same routine every day, and that routine starts to break down, and you're getting the sense that the island itself is haunted, but it's haunted like over time and mm-hmm. space and and it's a it's a like to call it like trippy or hallucinogenic doesn't really do it justice like it's an experience like fully engrossing yourself in this movie it's like you're if you can give yourself up to it, it's totally foreign it's like I don't understand this world i but I'm trying to figure it out just like this woman's trying to figure it out. And it's the like most singular movie experience I had of the year where I'm like, I can't compare this to mm-hmm. anything like what? Yeah. You can call it folk horror. Jean Dielman. Sure. Yeah. F- that. Yeah. But like the movie gives you incomplete data. Like there's not enough information to fully explain the narrative of it, which is great. Like it's an experimental work. And like you said earlier, like the year really started off with a bang with Skin and Marink with that like slow horror experimentation. Yeah. And then we saw Outwaters around Mardi Gras. And then soon after that, we did that slow cinema episode where we talked about this sort of like very methodical, leisurely paced, softly explained narratives that like linger on a single image for a long period of time. And this movie is shot on old film stock, Mm -hmm. old camera equipment. It's made to look like it was like an experimental film from 50 years ago. It's like an artifact. It's like you found a film reel buried in the forest. And the folk horror aspect of it is this island is haunted specifically by seamen and miners who worked on this Cornish island. Mm. um, And their spirits are just sort of lingering. And it's like a lot of men who died by sea and died because of labor around where this woman is currently working isolated alone. And, the communal grief of that feeling matters more than putting together three sentences of like what actually happens to her, what these images that she's experiencing of her own past. Like there's a character Mm -hmm. that might be her daughter or her younger self. We don't know. Like there's a lot of like things that can't be fully explained in words, but like the emotions that bubble up through the images and the sounds, the sensory experience of the movie are like way more impactful than like any narrative explanation could be. Yeah. And it's sort of like this multi-generational trauma where kind of, I love the idea of like time is all existing at once. So the past, present, the future just stacked on top of each other. Um, And there is kind of like, and Hannah, you, discovered this because I, I didn't realize the whole like workers yeah day and may day may yeah day, right. so the day like so she's, that adds a lot of context to it yeah, i think she's monitoring the soil like this temperature of the soil and uh this like little growth of flowers and she goes there every day 
and she records in her, I believe in her notebook, she she may write the temperature, but maybe she just says no change. Yeah, I think she yeah, does both. no change. Yeah, no, no change. change. So it's no like change. days upon days. At some point, just, she starts hallucinating, and that's a fucking lie. When she writes no change, it's like, you had a weird day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But there, like, I think the day that she goes... Either the temperature changes or it's the day that she goes to the flowers and there's this lichen that started to grow on them. And the day that happens is May Day, I believe. And then she's also hearing through the radio like May Day, May Day. So it's, you know, May Day being like obviously a ship crashing or like um, emergency and then also like the um, the associations that it has with labor and I think, I mean, the lichen is also this, like, really beautiful image of, like, I, I saw it as, like, kind of a manifestation of grief or trauma, too. Like, it grows on this scar that she has, and it's something that, like, grows on a stone, you know, something that's, like, immobile or can't move. I don't know. There's just something about the feeling of being, like, stuck or even, like, sunken and having this this thing kind of like proliferate on you there's also like a narrative explanation for the lichen too like I, my interpretation of the movie which is no more valid than any other <laughs> one because uh, there's not incomplete information but the lichen reminded me of like there's like a wheat germ or like some kind of like um fungal that can grow on wheat that like people use as an explanation for the witch trials yeah, mm-hmm. so like there's something about the lichen growing that could have caused her yeah, to like hallucinate. And what yeah. we see as her interpretation of reality is like somewhat kicked off by the growth of this like mm-hmm. fungus um, invading mm-hmm. the few flowers on a cliffside. She's like taking notes on every yeah. day. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that's any, anything <laughs> I like that. more yeah. important than anything else, but it, that, that stuck with me too. But this, I just love movies like this where like you said, your interpretation is just as valid as anyone else's. And you, have incomplete information which i know is frustrating for some people uh, that you will never have the answers to this movie but it is an enigma and it is like totally engrossing in a total sensory experience so okay on the other end of that scale (laughs) another high artifice piece but one that everyone can enjoy the only movie (laughs) that was on all of our lists yeah my number five britney's number five james's number five and Honda's number four. It's my number four? Well, I know it's my number four, but okay. Uh, so this is Barbie. Uh, have you heard of it? Have you heard of it? <laughs> it's kind of a big <laughs> The deal. highest grossing film of the year. Yeah. Oh, um, is it really? I think so. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yes. Um, Greta Gerwig uh, directed this. It is just absolutely gorgeous. Actually, this was me and James's double feature with Asteroid City, which well, that's was great. fantastic. Margot Robbie's in both of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... I, I, everybody knows. Everybody's Barbie. seen Barbie, right? Everybody's <laughs> seen Barbie. Yeah. Barbie is having feelings of existential dread and doubt, which is inexplicable. She lives in a wonderful, perfect Barbie world, which is just absolutely. Go- I mean, this movie is totally gorgeous. It's yes. like the, the, the 50s soundstage phantasma gasma. Uh, she goes to the real world. Uh, with Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, who is just absolutely phenomenal, um, finds the person who plays with her. They uh, Ken goes back to Barbie Land after learning about the patriarchy, and 
um, infects Barbie land with um, machismo and the Kens become the ruling uh, gender. Uh, Barbie comes back with uh, America Ferreira the, and her daughter, and they re-inoculate the Barbies uh, with feminism and kind of retake Barbie land. But this, I mean, this movie is uh, just absurdly funny. It's gorgeous. It is like nonstop entertainment for the complete runtime. Like it is, and it's like bringing you into a completely artificial constructed world in a way that like I haven't seen in recent years. Like Asteroid City kind of gave me the same thing, but it's nowhere near like the scale or the gloss as Barbie land. And I mean, it was just like a total absolute pleasure. It had some like something to say about like womanhood and femininity and like staking out your identity um, which was like, I mean, that, that was, um, not as interesting to me as like, it was just a pleasure to watch. Yeah. It, I mean, like what I said, this is the highest grossing movie yeah. of the year. It's incredible that it's on all our lists. Last yeah. year, our number one movie was everything everywhere as a group. And that also won the Oscar for best movie. Like it's kind of nice that the industry has room for these like creative triumphs like this. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching this in particular. I mean, the things that appealed to me were one, that it was funny. It's like a funny it's comedy. It's very funny. Yeah. But two, like, I'm not used to mainstream Hollywood filmmaking being this good. Like, yeah. Something about the high artifice costume and set design of this, like the really fully immersive barb and star color palette yeah. of this feels so good. And it feels like what Hollywood should be good at all the time. It just never is. Like, it feels like singing in the rain or wizard yeah. of oz or like kind of this like this is what the movie machine should feel like all of the time and it's so refreshing to like go into a major motion picture based on a pre-existing idea it's basically a giant doll commercial but it's still got exciting ideas funny characters beautiful costumes it's just a highly entertaining mainstream movie yeah and i liked like it had a political message and it was aware of its own kind of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. like it knew like oh it's a mattel commercial but we're also gonna kind of critique capitalism yeah. and but... like make fun of all this stuff that it's feeding into and i i think greta gerwig was had to toe a very fine line i think she did it beautifully i don't know how else she could make a barbie yeah. movie without having mattel involved or the hollywood machine but this is about as like crowd-pleasing innovative Everyone can agree this is good filmmaking that you get now, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. really don't know what else. It's just legitimately like if you think of like what is an amazing movie that came out in the past couple of years, like this like automatically comes to like that mind crosses all like boundaries. Yeah. Like, also young people, old people, men, women, everyone I know that has seen this movie be like even guys I know that were dragged to it by like their girlfriends. Like, man, that movie was fucking funny. It's funny. It's like, yeah, it was good. And every single person looks like they're having the time of their life. Like, yes. I feel like this was this was probably so fun to create and to um, act in. Like, it just seems Ugh. like such a joy. Just to be a part of it in like mm-hmm. any way was probably amazing. Yeah. And it feels like, I mean, speaking genera- generationally, because we all are in the same generation, like it feels like a millennial given keys to the car. In a way mm-hmm. that, like, doesn't always happen where they like, have full creative freedom. So, yeah. like, 
the movies it most reminded me of are like sleepover classics that Greta Gerwig would would have also grown up with. So like Legally Blonde or uh, mm. Spice World, um, yes. Josie and the Pussycats. Mm-hmm. There's something like ultra femme and ultra artifice about it that feels like it's an addition to a canon that's been like dormant. Um, even if it's just women being marketed to by the mainstream machine, like there's something about it that feels millennial um, in a generational way. It's like, I love movies like this. I haven't seen a movie like Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion in like 20, 30 mm-hmm. years. It feels good to have another one it's again. The closest one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I didn't go into it. Like at first I was like, Oh, is it going to be like this bizarre? Like, you know, there are, were good messages in it. And it wasn't like, I guess I was sort of like wondering if it would do the whole, oh, if you're a feminist, you can't like, like pink and you can't like be very feminine. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like you, I thought it was going to be like Barbie gives all that up to like enter like another like level of like womanhood or something. But I like how the message was like, fucking do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You don't have to fit this fucking mold if you want to do, if you want to be like astronaut barbie could be astronaut barbie or you could just be fucking regular barbie who cares do what you want to do but definitely buy barbie yeah right yeah my little (laughs) five-year-old niece was opening so many barbie the movie sponsored toys on christmas i had barbie again because i was a big like barbie girl because i was very into soap operas and i could like reenact soap operas with them because they had the look the ladies incredible but like okay so hollywood executives are scared of you know taking chances so they are only gonna green light movies with a guaranteed audience with a familiar property if they're only gonna do that this is the best case scenario for that style of filmmaking yeah it, it is how i kind of felt about the lego movies where they're like yeah oh yeah, well, yeah in both yeah it's like well <laughs> these are corporate as fuck but they're super well made and yeah. enjoyable so i can't really be Mad I would love it. more toy movies. Um, if they're this clever, sure. They're, yeah, this yeah. Clever. Cool. That's the, they're doing like the Mattel universe. I know. And it's, uh, I yeah. yeah part I part just, of me is so cynical about that, but, but if what the if movies it are good, they're good. I don't know. And like Orlando, what is it? Universal Studios, like having yeah. a Barbie land and having other lands with their Lego land. Like, I just, I'm, I'm into that. I don't know. I don't know if I have a lot of faith in like the Magic 8-Ball movie being good. You know, <laughs> I don't it know. It like could a, be. It was like a, you know, Talk to him. <laughs> talk to the eight ball. Talk to me. Kind right. of scenario yeah. with the yeah. Magic Night Shyamalan's ball. Magic Eight Ball. <gasps> yeah. God, Ooh. I would watch this shit. That's God. a great idea, Brandon. All right. I know. Give me a Hollywood it, job. It could get hokey like really <laughs> right. fast. Yeah. And I guess what I really want is more like uh, Singing in the Rain, like Powell and Pressburger. No yeah, more Dream Bellies. Right. Not more like corporate properties. There. <laughs> Let's keep the style and not the product. That's right. and I started talking about poor things in 2017. The idea of having a brain that is brand new, what would that be? Where did she come from? She's an experiment. She's progressing at an accelerated pace. I was blown away by Bella, by the character. I don't think I've ever seen or read anyone like that. Working with Emma, that's the reason this film for me was so exciting to make. 
that you could have the kind of mind that isn't taught to be a certain way, I think that's very inspiring. <laughs> All of these things that women are conditioned a whole lifetime through do not apply to her. It's an incredibly challenging part. It's probably the hardest part I've ever played. A woman plotting her course to freedom. So Brittany remains the MVP of this episode. Our last outlier film is also your number one movie of the year. I thought it was going to be some other number ones. Um, So my number one movie of the year is Saltburn. I'm so obsessed with how amazing this movie is. Um, So it's by Emerald Fennel, Mm -hmm. um, who was Midge in Barbie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I liked A Promising Young Woman. I didn't love it. I thought it was okay. So I am so blown away by the fact that she like was a writer on this and the director um, because it, I didn't find the connection between that and A Promising Young Woman where I feel like I might have judged her a little too harshly with that one where I was like, okay, like, I don't know. I guess you could say they if, both have like a it felt big different. topic they tackle. Like Maybe. One's about gender and the other one's about class they both also have like a little bit of high style yeah like very, Maybe, yeah. yeah a promising young woman is a little like like less so than salt burn but there is still it was highly it's stylized. that millennial pop art style yeah. as barbie as well like a lot of throwback needle drops to like the 2000s era and like yeah, yeah. Ca- candy coated like pop it, art aesthetic mm-hmm. it really made me feel like shit that was a long time ago like the music from like everything yeah. was very early 2000s were, were which feels like, like last year mgmt like in vampire weekend yeah, yeah. Like, just oh, like this is like college yeah yes arcade fire arcade, yeah. yeah a college movie that takes place in college um when we were in college we, we were, were old college. which is yeah <laughs> wild um but from so the way this movie was like really marketed, it seemed like it was going to be like some sort of Grey Gardens type movie with a bunch of like rich people going bad shit in their like mansion, um, which I'm totally all about. So I'm like, okay, cool. I'll go see this. And it's kind of about that, but it's also not about that at all. Um, the level of obsession that like the main character has I love like I love movies about people who get like so obsessed with something that they really want that they like do whatever the fuck they want to get to it and how like manipulative he was like his character and like the way he went about just sort of fucking everything up was amazing and it's also fucking filthy and trashy and that's what I really like caught on to like I love movies that like I don't know. It was sort of like the bathtub scene here was sort of like the level up of the peach scene and call me by your name. Um, <laughs> well, he actually swallows in this one. The peach doesn't he, eat the peach. Yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. Literally licks a bathtub dry. Um, but beyond like the trash, which is amazing. Um, the, the way that I think it's Barry Keoghan. Keoghan. Um, Keegan, I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't figure it was like Keoghan or Keegan. Irish name. So looks old and young at the same time. (laughs) Yes, he looks just like my eight-year-old nephew. (laughs) Really? Oh Oh, dear. (laughs) So the chemistry that he and Jacob Elordi had, I thought, was so amazing. Um, Like I can just them as this sort of like not like power couple, maybe power couple going off of each other's energies through this was like really, really freaking cool. Um, 
Roseman Pike was amazing. She's very funny. She's like very funny. Like the the absence from their minds. I don't know. Um, I just fucking liked it. I liked it a lot, and I've watched it tons of times. I recommend it to everybody. Wait, put a number on this. How many times do you think you've seen this movie? Five times. <laughs> what? It's so good. It's just it was on Amazon Prime, so yeah, you can watch it a bunch. So I've seen it five times since it came out. Um, I love also like. And I, I don't like normally rate movies based on how like the public reacts to them, but I love how like now it's like this massive like took over TikTok. Like there are these like um, Gen Zers who are like, "Hey, I'm gonna make my grandma watch Saltburn for Christmas." I'm like, "Yes." There is like, a generational you divide little there too. Like this movie looks like an Instagram filtered, yeah. but like there are a lot Not of Gen Z kids way. who are latching onto it, and to me. Like, that's totally great. Like, it reminds me of when Cruel Intentions came out when I was 13. Yeah. It was, like, the first, like, filthy movie I had yeah, seen. Yeah, it's like, let these, like, the young generation glom onto the filth. And you know what? I know Cruel Intentions isn't great, and I still love it now. It's a wonderful you know, All these movie. years later. Yeah, it's, so, it's it reminds me of this. But I think there's an older generation, a, a kind of curmudgeons around our age, who are, like, looking at all these Gen Z kids who are, like, attaching themselves to this movie, and like, oh, you haven't seen something transgressive yet. You haven't seen something fucked up. This is like a watered-down version of Talented Mr. Ripley or something like that. But to me, it's like, I know you. I've watched fucked up movies with you. I watched The Suckling with you in the same room this year. Yeah. It's not like transgressive cinema is like a new concept to you. And you still latched onto this movie, which to me says that there's something more going on to it than like just the surprise of watching someone drink cum on screen for the first time. Yeah, like I've seen that before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I did. But it's also like what you were saying, like the Instagram filter of it, that beautiful mansion that we're fucking yeah. stuck in when the with editing, this little psychopath. Like the editing, like it's all a music video and it's like... Fan cam edits of Jacob Lordy looking hot. And he, yeah. Like everyone's just going crazy because he's just so hot. I don't find, I don't find him hot, but I enjoy like how people think like, like he's hot or Timothy Chalamet's hot. Mm-hmm. I don't find them hot, but I just find their presence so like amazing. Is Barry Keegan hot? Yes. There it is. I think so. Okay. I had a weird thing. I did. When I watched this movie, I had a weird thing going on because I've never imagined what Barry Keegan's body looked like. Muscular and childish. Damn. It was like a weird. It it was like he was a, yeah, he was small, but he was like thick and muscular. Yeah. Yeah. And then that that final scene is iconic. It's iconic. It is iconic. Like him dancing around naked in this mansion. (laughs) The Halloween costume of 2024. We can only hope. I I was like, I get it. Everyone will do it. I get why people would latch on to this movie. That's pretty like memeable. The movie was very memeable in a way, like drinking cum out of the thing and the Instagram filter of it. Fucking the grave is really fun. Fucking the the grave grave is very good. Dancing naked in the mansion. Right. And it's just, it's everything together. Like I love how there's, I don't know. There's like, it's funny. There's a thriller aspect to it. Like right when you think everything's over with, it's not. And then it takes this other turn and then it takes another turn. Does it though? But it doesn't. I thought it did. No, because it, it telegraphs very, everything it's, it's doing. It's very clear that he is manipulating them from like halfway into the movie. Okay. So there's no like surprise that he was manipulating them to do all this stuff. So the That's first two shock. times I watched it, I was like, okay, <laughs> he really like liked Jacob Elordi's character and he's like I want to fuck this guy really bad and then he went to his house and he's like I not only want to fuck him but I want his house right and then 
whenever like he punches the mirror and the mirror is not punched i'm like that's when his brain flips and he like goes into this next character that's what i thought and then like now that like i watched it a few other times (laughs) it's like another meaning where there's so many layers to this so smart um Where I'm like, no, like he knew what he was doing from the beginning Mm -hmm. and he's obsessed. Like what he wants to fuck is like the The idea of these people and their wealth. Right. Oh, okay. I'm going to complain a little bit and it's like not this movie's problem. It's like a, um, a production problem in general. It's like now everything has to have a trailer for itself. So like the first 30 seconds to a minute of this movie is a trailer for all the stuff you're about to watch. And it's like a quick edit of all these images and ideas that you're about to see. And I feel like I got the whole scope of the movie in like 30 seconds. And then there's another recap trailer of everything you already watched. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, And like the sequence right before the final dance off the final naked dance. So like, the summarization of everything. And if you even just watch a trailer for a movie right now, even trailers have their own trailers. So like right. you're about to see the trailer for Saltburn in five, four, three, yeah. two, one. And there's like a countdown of images to what you're going to see in Saltburn. And then there's a trailer for the movie. Like there's something about not trusting the audience to like go along for the ride and like kind of summarizing everything and promising filth and excess and then you having to wait for it. Yeah. That annoys me, but it feels like that's not even a creative decision. That's somebody giving her money to make a move and is like, okay, we're going to have this on Amazon Prime. Statistics have shown that people will turn off this movie if you haven't engaged them in the first 40 seconds. We need you to put like a promise of what imagery is going to mm-hmm. be there. Also, people are going to be scrolling on their phones and not really paying attention. So I need you to summarize everything that happened at the end as well so they remember and like are clued into the fact that Barry Keegan's been corrupted the whole time. Like Those feel like production notes and not... Emerald Fennell making creative choices. Yeah. Those two mo- those two montages annoyed me. I like everything okay. in the middle. There's like a lot of stuff in the middle that I think is very good. That's my complaint. <laughs> I mean, fair. Quick rant. Yeah. But the, the trailer, when I first saw the trailer, I thought it was going to be like nominated for Oscars and shit. It and might it, be, honestly. It best really original screenplay. Should. Yeah. For screenplay? That's what she got for a Promising Young Woman. She won it. I don't. I don't see it. But. It's it's just like a trashy, fun, yes, campy. It's a good. It should have been a summertime trash release and yeah. not a prestige season Oscar release. I agree and with I that. did, and I did have fun with it, but like this thing. Ain't but isn't it trashier that it is a prestigious like Oscar time release? I mean, it makes me laugh. I the idea of like, uh, I like the old fogies watching that bathtub scene. Is it's funny. Yeah, I like, like the, <laughs> the bait and switch of it. Like somebody like oh Saltburn, yeah, I heard it's on a lot of critics. It's prestigious. top ten. Yeah, and you see, but like it's what it like actually is doing what the movie's doing. It's like a little bit, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of old people <laughs> watching their Oscar screeners and getting into like a very fucked up, perverted time, uh, James, Hannah, and I all had the same number one movie of the year. Wow, has this ever happened? No, no way. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna introduce this one because I feel like I've yeah. been shirking responsibility for that all episode. yeah yeah i want <laughs> you're really you good on that too. responsibility uh yorgos lanthimos is a director who has been around for a while making wait, very provocative films wait hold on before you get started i just want to say i was talking to my mom today and she was like yeah me and your stepdad we watched some movie on netflix 
had Nicole Kidman and what's that Colin guy? Oh. I was like, I don't know. What are you? T-? It's like it was yeah. terrible. They just like talked in monotone the whole movie. Like no one had any emotion. And I was Barry like, Keegan's in that. Oh, was it Yorgos Lanthimos? I was like, are you talking about Killing of a yeah. Sacred Deer? It's like, oh, that's it. Yeah, the series was like that. It was bad. They might like Saltburn. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, and then <laughs> I was trying to explain Yorgos Lanthimos. Well, right. that's his like kind of style, but he's kind of moved away from it in this mm-hmm. latest film that. We're going to talk about. I've struggled with him in time. I, I know that um, Dogtooth came up on our like best of the decade list because yeah. Brittany and Hannah really mm-hmm. liked that movie. Love Good it. one. Um, and he's always had kind of a Lars von Trier esque provocateur space in my head where it's like he just provokes for reasons I can't tell what they are except to watch people squirm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and over time, Yorgos Lanthimos coming up over and over again and me like engaging with his work. And I feel like his breakthrough was the lobster. That was the big one. Everyone saw they got like a wide release. Um, he's become more and more accessible, but without losing that provocateur mm-hmm. stance and his partnership with Tony McNamara, the screenwriter started with um, the favorite, which was his most recent picture before his new one, which is called Poor Things, which is Swamplex's number one movie of the year, at least on this podcast. Ooh. It might be usurped by, I believe, Ennis Main has a good chance yeah. of taking it over in the wider list. But as far as this podcast recording goes, Poor Things, three of our number ones. And something he did with Dogtooth was like poking at the nuclear family unit and being like, why are families structured this way? This is weird to me. What's that about? Or in The Lobster, it's like, why are people pairing off of monogamous relationships like this? What's that courtship ritual about? I don't really get it. And he's like kind of picking it apart like someone who just landed on Earth for the first day of his life and is like trying to figure out what the ritual of all these social contracts are about. And in Poor Things, to me, what this movie's about is this character who it is her first day on Earth. <laughs> And she's let loose as this like Frankenstein monster who's just been given life in this adult body, but has a child's brain and is like, what are all these things? What is society? What is monogamy? What is the family unit? What is an appropriate sexual pleasure? How do I act like a human being who's trying to experience pleasure in the world, but um, is still accepted as someone who can be seen as an equal and a functional member of society? And it's like all of Yorgos Lanthimos' ideas about poking at these little social interactions spread out to the entire spectrum of the human experience. That's how I experienced the movie when I saw it a little early. Since then, I feel like most of the discourse has been around the fact that Emma Stone's character is controlled by all these different men in her life. And like a lot of her experiences outside her home after she's been created, this Frankenstein monster are all about male control. And like her father doesn't want to let her outside the house to be her own person played by Willem Dafoe as this like uh, Frankenstein style monster himself. Who's been experienced his own um, traumas of control and like male possessiveness from his own father. Uh, once she starts branching out, there's this character played by Rama Yusuf, who's like this um, kind of kind hearted lover, but still has that male possessive streak in her and would kind of crib and contain her experiences in life. If she just gave into, you know, life as a wife under his um, romance, but instead she breaks out and has sex with <laughs> Mark Ruffalo, <laughs> who is this fuckboy character who just blows up the whole situation. Um, he, brings this Frankenstein experiment out into the world to possess her with his own playboy um, sexual pleasure. He's basically like 
introducing her to carnal desire and um, still wants her locked in that hotel room and like obsessive over his sexual prowess and is frustrated by the fact that she will not be contained. She keeps leaving the hotel <laughs> to have her own little experiences and like see what the world is all about. Um, basically like science experiments, like learning what being a human being means like in the world at large. He cannot handle this. It's the first woman he's ever had sex with who like is not particularly attached to him and it like breaks his brain. Mark Ruffalo gives a very over the top like SNL level sketch comedy performance. I feel like Emma Stone and Willem Dafoe are also in that register where everyone else is maybe a few steps below them as far as like artifice goes. Um, but they're all like given some of the best performances of the year. Um, the costume and production design has this kind of Jean Genet, maybe Tim Burton style heightened version of like Victorian era history, but it's mm-hmm. like unreal and uncanny and is like in a fantasy world that has never really existed, even though it's historical. Uh, like the, uh, Terry Gilliam. Terry yeah. Gilliam as well. Reminded me. It's calling back to the James Whale Frankenstein movies as well, which I watched all eight of the movies in that Universal series this Halloween. So Whoa. I was already primed to love this anyway. But yeah, I feel like this movie really tackles the entire realm of human experience, even though it is a very gendered one and is very similar to the self-actualization of Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie as well. Um, it's just like the fucked up pervert version of that movie. Yeah. And I, I agree with everything you said. Yeah. And on top of that, I want to say like funniest movie of the year. Oh, I laughed the whole time. Yeah. You can't like, <laughs> you can't downplay how funny this movie, like I was talking about how, no dream scenario had like my favorite singular scene, but this consistently from like scene to scene is fucking hilarious and it does not let up, but it's also like extremely poignant. And I was also thinking about it, you know, connected with Barbie and its feminist message. And this one actually feels really transgressive in a way that the Barbie can't because it's tied to, you know, Mattel, this is a Disney distributed film, though, which is nuts to <laughs> <Really>? insane. <laughs> wow. The amount of like sex and depravity on yeah. screen. That the fact that this is like a Disney My subsidiary. Mom was supposed to go with me to see this yeah. movie, and she bailed. And I'm so Thank glad God. she did because I had no idea. There's so much sex in this movie. It's like a horny Frankenstein picture. I haven't seen it yet, but like people that I work with that like do not like films like this were like, yeah, everyone like how it got so mainstream yeah. is like amazing because it's, it's right. like trapping people and they're like watching pervy shit unexpectedly which I love and that made it a wonderful unique theater experience uh-huh. too mm-hmm. just to watch this like super explicit like <laughs> like sex for a solid like 45 minutes basically and to be laughing with people about yeah. like these fundamental like gross weird things about being alive and human nature that like you don't normally share with strangers it was a it felt like a really communal experience yeah and that we already talked about this but like you know post-covid being back in theaters and like i really just love seeing movies at the theater and yeah to your point like watching something this weird and darkly comedic and sexy and and having a group of people you've never met enjoy it with you. Yeah. Like there were audible laughs throughout. It just made me feel like happy mm-hmm. to be like in the space with these people. Sounds That's, like it's healing our country. 
<laughs> yeah, I hope everyone sees it. That's what's kind of lost about the discourse about this and Barbie in particular is like a lot of people want to boil them down to one idea. And it's like, this is a feminism 101 movie and it's about, you know, self-actualization yeah. and like, to me, they're both movies about being alive and being a human being. And like, yeah, that does account for about half of the people alive and, you know, like the feminist <laughs> right. angle on that. And maybe in this one in particular, there are more rules about what women are allowed to do in public spaces. So it becomes about male possessiveness and like the the boundaries of how women are allowed to exist outside of the home. So like, yeah, maybe there is more of a feminist angle than just like a broadly humanist one. But the overall takeaway message of this movie and a Barbie for me were just like the experience of being a human being in the world, like that, yeah. that communal, like yeah. universal experience. Like that's what the movie's poking at. Ultimately, like, the feminism is just like one aspect of yeah. it to me. And I also like, I think it focused on ways that she is contained and caged, but there are other examples of men that are contained and caged in other ways. Like there's, a man she meets on the cruise who's kind of like caged by his cynical philosophy. Gerard Carmichael. Yeah, Yeah. that that scene got to me. Right. He's like, he has a cynical worldview and and like she kind of realizes that he is just scared of kind of being in the world. Yeah, what is that? That that line of dialogue gutted me because it was like, it's yeah, like you're just you're a little boy who thinks the world is broken, or some something like that. Or like, yeah, you're like a little boy yeah. who can't handle that the world is broken. Yeah, and what he brings like, into her fuck. brain too is like not. He's like the first person that doesn't um, engage with her sexually. Mm-hmm. It's like he brings the idea of like class and philosophy and ethics into her yeah. world. Yeah, and the second half of the movie is really about her trying to be an ethical person in the world, not just someone who lives right. for her own immediate pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, and another thing that kept thinking about too is like you know when you're a you're a child and you're this kind of pure thing and then society sort of breaks you down and has to you have to fit in this certain mold and then you learn about suffering mm-hmm. you know and like she when, when they're staying at the resort and she looks down and there's like slaves that their babies are dying and it just breaks her and she has to like grapple with like yeah. what it means to that other people like you are suffering like it's a really basic existential question and she like works through all that stuff and i love by the end the answer that the film seems to give is like you gotta like find your community Mm -hmm. you gotta find what you love what you're passionate about and what you gives meaning to your life and that's the key to like surviving which is i don't know the bare bones basic humanist shit that all films really try to get at. And this gets at it in a way that's like really transgressive and funny and has a lot of dirty jokes and a lot of cursing. Yeah. It also looks at humans as like base animals that like only care about immediate orgasmic pleasure, (laughs) which is like a funny take on the species as well. Yeah. I think also visually just like Barbie, beautiful, like, but this is just like surreal, gorgeous, strange, like experimental, like it uses like so many different visual styles and techniques in ways that feel like uh, that feel intentional, not just like a gimmick. You know, there's like a lot of the beginning of the movie is filmed with a fisheye. And that's kind of like when she's still getting 
um, kind of her brain is still developing, and so she's like a little like alien in the world. And she's, she's trapped in. in a little fishbowl. She right. can't leave that house. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then yeah, she leaves, and then it's like these super saturated like yellows and greens and oranges, and just it it is like a breathtakingly beautiful movie. And that's Lanthimos as a director, I think, doing his best work is like it's not just him imposing his vision on everything. This isn't just the guy who made Dogtooth, even though mm-hmm. that, that voice still comes through. He's also giving permission to like each of his collaborators to go fucking nuts. Like <laughs> the costume design is really yeah. eccentric. The cinematography, like you were just saying, really over the top. Um, Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo in particular are given free reign to like try <laughs> weird takes and like be as over the top as they want in every scene. And it really works. And, and the score too. Very oh, yeah, yeah, strange. Yeah, very strange. Funky. Especially in the beginning. A lot of just random clicks Boing, and clacks. Pops. And boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. It's, it's a great film. Anyone who's interested in like the history of horror will have some sort of association with especially mm-hmm. James Whale's Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And like this really evolves that like base idea into like something new and interesting. And I think widens the scope of Lanthimos's relationship to like human drama on the screen into something really expansive. I think it's his best movie he's ever made. I have loved him. Like I loved Alps, which people, not that many people like I love dog tooth. Like I have been following him for a while. And the fact that he made this movie, which is, so totally different from his other ones, but has like the threads that he's been kind of like ruminating on for years. It's just like, like an explosion of cinema. Like it, it is such a joy to see him make like what his like sixth, seventh film. It is like wildly expressive and wonderful. And I, I do think, you know, a lot get into the conversation of like greatest living directors or working directors and like i don't know this for me puts him up in that Mm -hmm. conversation because like just when you look at his filmography as a whole it's wildly creative and this especially is like his masterpiece like it's the best thing that he's made from like one of the best living directors so it's like a pretty fucking great movie (laughs) <laughs> i think if the reason it's not going to be the website's number one movie if it if that doesn't happen is just because not enough of us saw it yeah because it was like a late entry in the year one of the more annoying things about this year even though there were tons of great movies i'm very happy about the entire picture of like 2023 cinema mm. but like studios held a lot of stuff until december part mm-hmm. of that was because of the strikes but a lot of it is just because of how the awards season marketing works and like all of the like quote unquote great movies from great directors were like squeezed in the last month. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there was like this big lull where I'm like, there's really nothing there. And then all of a sudden it was like just too much to watch. Yeah. yeah. November, like, December, there was a lot of catch up going yeah. on. But, you know, I think we did a good job today of talking about very exciting movies. Mm-hmm. I really found a lot of pleasure in these films. Like, this is yeah. a great Yay. crop of movies. Yeah. Uh, and we will come back in two weeks with an honorable mentions episode. Where we're gonna dive deeper into fewer titles. <laughs> it will not be right. as exhaustive <laughs> as this. Uh, and in the meantime, next episode on the Land Yet podcast, we are talking about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, a movie I've not yeah. seen and can't really comment on. Uh, <laughs> but I like that director a lot, so I'm excited to see what that movie is. If you think I'm stupid now, you should see me with a high, and I'm smarter than I look. I'm the dumbest girl alive. I took cannabis today. I got bruises on my thighs. Plus, I gave away my brain. I'm the dumbest girl alive. I got. Lo-
Can you show me how? Can you show me how?